perfect aid for intermittent fasting. Check out this review from John K on our Firestarter supplement from Heart and Soil. I have used Firestarter daily for over one month and definitely plan on keeping it as part of my regimen. I take this in the morning with quote, bulletproof coffee and the fats keep me full all morning. I've lost some weight, but more importantly, I don't feel starved and I still have energy and mental clarity to keep up with the middle schoolers I teach. Highly recommended. How cool is that? I love it. The fat in Firestarter is high stearic acid tallow from animals, from the suet, from the kidney fat. This is the most precious fat in the animal. Stearic acid is a molecule I've talked about a lot. It's involved with fat burning, satiety, satiety signaling in the brain. It's amazing. And we put it in our fire starter. You can think of these as carnivore jelly beans added to any of our supplements. They will improve absorption of the fat soluble vitamins. Okay. Another awesome one. Check out this one. Pure cell regeneration. Collagen, collagen, collagen. This review is not just about the bone matrix. It's about the whole movement towards being radical and healthy to the next level. At the age of 38, severe arthritis in my knees due to injury in sports, receding gums, colon problems, two months into bone matrix, beef organs, fresh in the capsules uh, when needed and gut and digestion. I can't remember what my knee pain is. My GI tract is the happiest it has been and my gums are coming back, which is phenomenal, (laughs) phenomenale. Bone matrix is a blessing because although I'm quite regimented with my bone broth, I don't always feel like going through 48 hour process. The supplement is absolutely necessary for my overall health. And it's the one I will always keep stocked on my shelf. Thanks, Paul. You are radical. Show us your surfing videos soon. Surfing videos are coming, guys. Uh, This review is from Marco. Marco, you are radical. Marco also appreciates gut and digestion and beef organs, and they help his knees and his gut, all kinds of good stuff. So in this uh, series of reviews, we're highlighting fire starter, beef organs, gut and digestion, and bone matrix. This is all a part of how you can reclaim your birthright to radical health, guys. This is what we do at Hardened Soil. We make grass-fed, grass-finished, freeze-dried organs and capsules. It's amazing. Check us out, heartandsoil.co. Uh, in this week's podcast, I am commenting in the beginning on David Sinclair's recent ideas that he talked about on Andrew Huberman's podcast. I'm good friends with Andrew, as I mentioned in this podcast. And hopefully Andrew and I will get a chance to talk on his podcast and mine about how my idea is different than David's. Different than David's. However, I also had David on my podcast in 2019, and we talked about cellular regeneration, longevity, aging, DNA damage, NMN, NAD. And so I thought this is a good time to repost that conversation because many of you may not have heard or may have missed the 2019 conversation I did with David Sinclair. It's quite technical. As many of you know, David is amazing. He's a PhD from Harvard Medical School and has done a lot of research into molecules, resveratrol among others. And there are times at the end of this podcast that David and I get to have a little bit of friendly debate. I'd love to have David back on the show for more in-depth friendly debate to share our different opinions. But for right now, I felt like this is the best way to discuss this. In the beginning of the podcast, I give about 20 minutes of my book-ended perceptions, uh, our discussions, uh, my opinions on that, how my views have changed since 2019. And then I will repost the 2019 podcast with David and Claire, which I think many of you guys will find very educational and enjoyable. So enjoy this one with David Sinclair, my thoughts on David Sinclair, and hopefully we'll do another one, David and I will, because David's a great guy. And even though we disagree, we've always been able to discuss these things with a jovial, friendly manner. Um, This podcast is free. Thank you for your support of it. Thanks for leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts. That is really one of the best ways to move the needle and help so many more people hear this podcast. So for a thank you, as a thank you to those who leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I will give away a free signed copy of my book every month to one person who does that. So thank you for that. 
And also thank you to my sponsors. They make this free podcast possible. I got to give a shout out to the folks at White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. They are making grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised beef, organs, chicken, turkey, guinea. They have soy and corn-free chicken, soy and corn-free eggs. Amazing. They're doing a great job of feeding so many of their animals in a species-appropriate way in Bluffton, Georgia. Jen and Harry, Jen and Jen and Jenny Harris and Will Harris are amazing people, and I so appreciate the work they're doing. You can find them whiteoakpastures.com. Use the code CarnivoreMD for 10% off your first order. Um, I want to give a shout out also to my friends at Blueblocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. They do great things. They are really into circadian rhythms and light and EMF, and they have recently come out with a laptop shield, which is awesome. If you have ever checked the amount of EMF coming off your laptop when you put it on your jewels, whether they're male jewels or female jewels or kid jewels, it's no good. You don't want to be putting your laptop on your lap. Even though it's called a laptop, don't do it. Or if you do do it, use one of these radiation screens that uh, Blue Box makes. Check it out. Blue Box also is making EMF reducing earbuds. AirPods are no bueno, guys. I would not use these. There's a lot of EMF coming off the earbuds and they are directly on your face near your brain. Don't do it. So check out the EMF reducing stuff from Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. You can get 15% off your order by using my code carnivore MD. Uh, shout, out, shout out also to Force of Nature. There is, uh, they will deliver grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised meat to your door. You can find them at forceofnature.com. They are based in Austin, Texas. 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised, wild-caught meats. In addition to beef and chicken, they have wild game like venison, elk, and boar. And they have an ancestral blend that contains 7% organs. You guys may know that Heart and Soil and Force of Nature are doing the collaborative thing this month with the Animal Based 30 Challenge. You can sign up at animalbased30.com. It's amazing. So many people are finding so many benefits from including an animal-based diet and including organs, either fresh or desiccated. If you want fresh organs, this ancestral blend from Force of Nature is amazing. If you want desiccated, check us out at Heart and Soil. But check out the reviews on Force of Nature's website. They have incredible um, reviews from kids or adults. It's a great way to get it into your life. My friends Spencer Pratt and Heidi Pratt, who was on the podcast last week, love Force of Nature. It's no question why I love it. Whenever I get to go out to the farm, Rome Ranch, Rome Ranch, and eat their stuff or get their stuff in my home when I'm back in Austin, I am stoked about it. Um, they're also really, really good people, and they do they do a good job of really advancing the right things in the world. So do your due diligence to look behind the curtain of how food brands are actually producing what we eat and directly affecting our health as a result. Marketing jargon is a powerfully convincing machine. We should always be advocating for ourselves by doing the proper research on who we are supporting. As Robbie, the CEO of Force of Nature says, you vote with your dollars. You cannot avoid voting with your dollars. And you're either voting for multinational corporations like Monsanto, or you're voting for amazing corporations like Force of Nature. So, Again, they are at forceofnature.com. They ship directly to your door. And as a perk for being a listener of Fundamental Health Podcast, they are offering 15 bucks off your first purchase if you enter the code CARNIVOREMD22, but you have to capitalize the C, capital C, capitalize MD for $15 off your whole order at forceofnature.com. Support the good guys. Support the good fight. Seriously, guys. And last but not least, you guys know male hormones are declining. I love the folks at Let's Get, Let's Get Checked. They are at TryLGC, as in try, let's get checked, but it's trylgc.com. Um, 
Male hormones are declining massively. Many of you may have heard Shanna Swan on Joe Rogan's podcast. This is scary. Even women's hormones are declining massively, but for men, it's going to cause erectile dysfunction, low energy, low fatigue, erectile dysfunction, anxiety, brain fog. It's horrible. But let's get checked. Is democratizing testing. So here's how it works. You can get 20% off by going to trylgc.com front slash carnivoremd. And you go there, you choose your test online and we deliver to your door in the next day, the door of your home, the door of your cave, the door of your hut on the beach, wherever. Next day delivery, activate your test sample, collect your stuff at home, in your cave, wherever you are. And your sample arrives to the laboratory. Laboratory, it's confidential results available, you, available to you online in the next two to five days. You get the results on five hormone levels if you do the, if you do the hormonal panel testosterone, SHBG, prolactin, estrogen, free energy index. Once your results are available, they're reviewed by a physician. A nurse contacts you for a consult over the phone. This is amazing. I got to use them at my house. I did a CRP. I did lipids. I did male hormones. It's super convenient, guys. They're CLIA approved, which is the highest level of accreditation for labs. So get 20% off at trylgc.com front slash carnivoremd. That's T-R-Y-L-G-C.com, front slash MD. They also tell me the coupon code is carnivore. So use some combination of that. You should get 20% off. And let me know what you guys think, but get your labs checked because understanding this stuff is super, super important. As we talk about in this podcast, you can even check your CBC. You can check your ferritin. You can probably check your ferritin. You can check your hemoglobin. All that stuff's important. You can definitely check your CRP. I hope they do fasting insulin. I say this every podcast. Let's get checked. <laughs> Do a fasting insulin. They might actually do it. That would be amazing. All right, guys, onto the podcast. Enjoy this one. Let me know what you think. And hopefully we can convince David to come back on for a friendly conversation in the future. What is up, truth seekers? So I want to do something a little bit different on this week's podcast. Um, I am good friends with Andrew Huberman. Andrew recently had David Sinclair on his podcast. Afterwards, I texted Andrew Huberman and I said, hey man, uh, hopefully you and I can have a conversation soon and talk about how my views on xenohormesis plants and uh, meat and aging are different than David Sinclair's. And he said, yeah, I bet you have different views. And hopefully Andrew and I will be able to make that happen soon with an episode on his podcast and mine in the future. Uh, for now, uh, I wanna say that I really appreciate the work David Sinclair is doing. He's a great human. I've met him in person a couple of times and I had him on my podcast in 2019. And I looked back at that podcast from 2019 and realized that we had talked about a lot of things that were relevant to my views and his views on aging, uh, molecular hormesis, xenohormesis, and many of our different views. So I thought that what I would do for this week's podcast is re-release the 2019 conversation with David Sinclair. This is one of my favorite conversations that I've ever done. Um, it's quite technical, but you will learn a lot. And at the end of the podcast, again, there are timestamps for this podcast with David Sinclair, you will find that I challenge him on a few things. I've also invited David back on the podcast. I'd like to have a full conversation with him about many of these issues and dive deeper, um, talk about the things that we agree on and talk about the things that we disagree on and let people hear our shared views. David is super respectful. I'm super respectful. I know it would be a great conversation. I really enjoy David as a human, but I really wanted to re-release this old podcast from 2019 because there's so much good stuff in here that I think many of you may not have heard about. That's a long time ago when it comes to the carnivore MD timeframe. And um, if you're watching the video on YouTube, you'll see that this was when I was in San Diego, when I had shorter hair, when it wasn't blonde on top, and when I occasionally wore glasses during the day. So a few things have changed in my perspectives since this conversation with David. The first of these is that 
while I defend ketosis or mention that ketosis or ketones achieve many of the same benefits with regard to sirtuin activation in this podcast, I'm no longer, I've evolved my perspective. I'm no longer a fan of perpetual chronic ketosis for humans, but it remains to be seen. It remains to be said, it continues to be said. I will continue to say it. That's a lot of ways to say the same thing in the same manner. Um, that when you are in ketosis, you can activate many of the same genetic mechanisms that resveratrol will activate specifically sirtuin one as we talk about in this podcast. So this all goes to my framework, the paradigm that I advance in my work, which is that plant molecules are better medicine than they are food. Plants make better medicine for humans than they do food. We've seen a lot of people talking about certain plant molecules recently, quercetin, molecules in black seed oil, curcumin, et cetera. And these are molecules that I have spoken out against, uh, sort of not in favor of with regard to them as food in the daily life. I've talked about turmeric as bullshit in my videos. Uh, I've talked about quercetin is in onions. I'm not a fan of onions long-term, but there's a difference when we use these molecules as medicine, if we're going to treat a virus, right? That's using a medicine or a pharmaceutical from a plant as a medicine rather than a food. This is a really important distinction that I want to make. I've been doing this work for many years now, and I actually am more convinced of this than ever, that plants especially vegetables, that is leaves, stems, roots, and seeds. These are the parts of the plant that are highly defended. Plants don't want you to eat this part of the plant, so they put defense chemicals in there. Defense chemicals are like the plant's pharmaceutical factory. Well, great, we can use the plant's pharmaceutical factory as pharmaceuticals. We should use them as medications, and I think a lot of people do better when they don't use them as food, which means if you want to use a molecule that is from kale or from spinach or from a grape skin like resveratrol as a medicine, that's great. But medicines are usually not something that we use long-term and we're always aware of the side effects of the medications that we use. For instance, if curcumin is found to improve viral outcomes or something in black seed oil or quercetin is found to improve viral outcomes, and obviously I can't say the name of the virus or this video will get bound, uh, banned, then great. Maybe it's, maybe it's useful for that, but doesn't mean you should eat it every day. And I think that when we look into these plant molecules repeatedly, this is my problem with xenohormesis, this word that David Sinclair has used um, in the past. I think we find that the benefits are outweighed by the risks, that the net benefit is not there, that it's a net negative because there are so many side effects to these plant molecules. Just like there's a side effect of taking any pharmaceutical every day for the rest of your life. Would you take ibuprofen every day for the rest of your life? Probably your answer is no. I hope your answer is no, because if your answer is yes, then you may get some benefit. You might get less joint pain, um, but you're also going to develop a stomach ulcer or going to have other problems related to ibuprofen. You might have kidney issues long-term because we know that ibuprofen affects prostaglandin synthesis. Prostaglandins are involved in dilatation of the efferent arterial and the glomerulus, and that leads to kidney issues long-term if you take ibuprofen as a, quote, food, as a daily uh, medication, which then makes it a food. So you don't use these things as food. You use them as medications. I believe we should use uh, molecules from plants as medications and that vegetables are not really food for humans. So with that in mind, with that framework, I want to talk about a few things that came up in David's recent conversation and give my perspectives on them as a bookend to this conversation with David from 2019. Again, like I've said, I hope David pardons this. I couldn't get him on the podcast this week for a formal, friendly uh, conversation slash debate, but hopefully he'll be willing to do that in the future. Uh, we'll see. 
So some issues that David has raised in the past are iron and iron overload. And there is some research to suggest that excess levels of iron in the human body cause increased senescence or increased zombie cells or increased cellular aging. Well, I think this is very nuanced and I have not seen any studies in humans that really support this claim. And if we look across many studies, uh, there's not a whole lot of longevity benefit in vegetarians versus non-vegetarians when we do the studies properly. Uh, there's not a whole lot of mortality benefit in vegetarians versus non-vegetarians. Presumably, vegetarians are having less iron. Uh, and David, in his recent podcast with Andrew Huberman, even says that he's slightly anemic and that his ferritin levels are a little low. And he claims that's a good thing. I would say that's a very bad thing. So here's the framework that I think about this in. Ferritin is a storage form of iron. And if you're eating a lot of red meat, your ferritin may go up. There's a small percentage of people who have hemochromatosis, which is a genetic problem in which you are going to absorb too much iron. But you will know that genetically. You can look at your ferritin. You can look at your iron saturation. If you have hemochromatosis, you are part of a very small percentage of the population that probably needs regular phlebotomy and needs to have their blood actually drained from them no matter what you eat. In that case, I still think you can eat red meat and organs. They're incredible sources of nutrients for humans, but you have to be carefully following your iron levels. For the rest of it, your body will regulate your iron levels. It'll stop absorbing iron when you have enough and your body kind of tops off at a, an optimal level for most humans. This is the magic of our human body. Why would the foods that have been most treasured by our ancestors for generations that give us the most nourishment, that give us the most bioavailable micronutrients be in fact killing us or shortening our lives? That doesn't make any sense. The whole point of being an organism is to live as long as possible, to be as vital as possible so that you can pass on your DNA as many times as possible. Evolutionarily, if meat were selecting against those things, we would have been, these aspects of our genetics would have been weeded out of the population long ago. It makes so much more intuitive sense to me. And the reason I'm using intuition now is because there's not a whole lot of good research to guide us here to say that red meat is harmful or worsening your longevity. And there's a lot of good research to suggest that red meat is incredible for mood, libido, micronutrient adequacy, body composition, mental clarity, all these things that why would red meat be bad for us when it's been so sought after for so long? So think about that as a framework for all of these discussions as well. With regard to iron, most of us will top off at a level of ferritin that I think is totally safe and normal for humans. There's no laboratory studies that you can find that will indicate that a ferritin of 100 or 200 or even something in that ballpark is harmful for most of us. Um, you can use a GGT, which is a gamma glutamyl transferase. That's normal when I check it on myself and on my clients. You can use an HSCRP, which is a marker of inflammation that David talks about in a recent podcast. Again, HSCRP is extremely low in most animal-based dieters and most people who eat animal-based diets. It's very low. There's no inflammation. There's no oxidative stress when we look at glutathione levels, when we look at GGT. So where is the evidence of cellular senescence with a ferritin of 100 or 200 when you're getting it from heme iron. Now, I don't think you should be taking iron from an iron supplement, but if you're getting iron from liver, if you're getting iron from heart, if you're getting iron from muscle meat, that is great. And there are a lot of people, especially women, especially menstruating women who have iron deficiency. If you are a menstruating woman and you don't know what your ferritin stores are, you don't know what your hemoglobin and hematocrit are, you should check those because many women are iron deficient. And that, in my opinion, is much more of an epidemic than any sort of excess cellular senescence from iron overload, unless you have hemochromatosis, which is massive iron overload, imbalanced due to genetic polymorphisms, which are correctable by phlebotomy and occur in less than 1% of the population, something that you will probably know about. So I don't worry about iron. If you are worried about iron, check your ferritin, okay? Check your GGT, check your HSCRP, check your fasting insulin. 
they will probably all be fine. I think those are the best laboratory indicators we have of iron metrics and associated oxidative stress. Another concern that a lot of people bring up is mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin. I actually talk about David in this podcast, uh, talk about this with David in this podcast from 2019. The concern is this, mTOR is going to overactivate aging, AMP kinase, AMP kinase is the, uh, is the anti- sort of uh, the counterbalancing enzyme to that or the counterbalancing kinase to that in the human body. I think this is an oversimplified perspective. You don't want AMP kinase all the time. You'll end up being scrawny and weak and have no libido and not be vital, not be able to do the things you want to do in your life. Your bone density will be low, right? These are a balance. You want mTOR. You want your body turned on. You want muscles being made. You want vitality. You want fertility. You want to make babies and raise babies and surf and climb trees and lift weights. And then you want your body to have its periods of recycling, house cleaning. And that is what happens when you eat and when you fast. It's feast, it's famine, it's feast, it's famine, it's feast, it's famine. This is why incorporating something like a daily intermittent fast or an intermittent uh, eating window into your day is a great idea. You should not be eating sugar throughout the day. You should not be eating sugar 20 hours a day. You should not be eating Cheetos at two in the morning, but you can get activation of these alternative pathways, this AMP kinase pathway when you're not eating. When I eat, you better believe I'm turning on mTOR. I'm going to eat all the protein I can. I'm going to get tons of leucine and do it with zeal because I want to turn on mTOR. Well, what else turns on mTOR? Exercise, weightlifting, all the things that you want to do anyway. You can't not turn on mTOR. You shouldn't be avoiding turning on mTOR. You should be heavily, fully turning on mTOR and then letting your body rest and digest and not having any calories and allowing mTOR to turn off, then AMP kinase comes on and it's all balanced. But I think there's way too much emphasis and demonization of mTOR in the literature. And this continues to just frustrate me uh, nearly endlessly. It's, it's very silly. So I want to show you guys um, a couple of interesting studies that are worthwhile to consider here. If you're watching on video, you'll see these. If you're not watching on video, I will read the um, titles to you. Um, there's one of them here that is interesting and important to consider the actions of exogenous leucine on mTOR signaling in amino acid transporters in human myotubes. That's the name of the study if you want to look it up. Basically, what the study shows is that both leucine and insulin trigger mTOR. But you know what's a bigger trigger of mTOR? Insulin. So if you're not eating protein, if you're following like David's recommendations, and you're avoiding a lot of leucine, you're going to be eating more carbohydrates. You have to eat something, right? You can't just be eating all fat. You know? You're going to eat a vegetarian diet. You're going to get more carbohydrates. You're going to trigger insulin. I'm not afraid of insulin, but I'm telling you, according to this study, and many studies like it, insulin triggers mTOR just as much, if not more, than leucine. So don't fear protein with regard to mTOR, embrace mTOR, do protein and carbohydrates, get leucine plus carbohydrates, really turn on mTOR. But don't think that because you're ordering, avoiding animal protein, you're avoiding turning on mTOR because the, the insulin that is in your body that is responding to all sorts of things is definitely going to turn on mTOR in a good way, in my opinion. Another thing to consider is this notion, and this kind of goes back to one of the first points that I made in this wrapping bookended rant before the podcast, and that is that if red meat were so harmful to humans, if red meat were affecting longevity, then why do we see studies like this one, which associate the consumption of red meat with increased telomere length? The study name of the study is the relationship between peripheral blood mononuclear cells telomere length and diet, unexpected effect of red meat. You can look that up. The conclusions, there was an unexpected correlation of telomere length with the frequency of consumption of red meat. 
And I love what they say here. This indicates the need for further in-depth research and may undermine some accepted concepts of the adverse effects of this diet on the health status of life longevity. Yeah, how come, how come we don't hear anyone talking about this study? Again, this is epidemiology. This is association. But what we're seeing here is a really fascinating association. Are telomeres the best indication of longevity? No, probably something like clock genes are, uh, epigenetic indicators, epigenetic clocks are. I would love to see a study looking at red meat consumption and epigenetic clocks, uh, epigenetic um, markers of human longevity or DNA age. But at least in terms of telomeres, which was one of the best markers we had at the time when that was done, there's an association positively, the more red meat people eat, the longer their telomeres are. Well, I bet you, I will bet you all a ribeye. I will bet David Sinclair a ribeye. I will eat a ribeye with David Sinclair when we discover or when we confirm the hypothesis. And the hypothesis would be that eating red meat, eating organs is longevity increasing because it gives you all the nutrients that you need to be an adequately physiologically healthy human. <laughs> In what world is a nutrient deficient diet going to increase longevity? Now, again, I said, I love David, but I would really love to have him on the podcast and debate him on some of these topics. He is advocating for a mostly plant-based diet. And in the podcast with Andrew Huberman, he's saying that you can get lots of vitamins from that. Mm, I'm going to disagree strongly and say, that's very nutrient deficient. You're going to need a lot of vitamins and minerals and supplements if you're eating that diet. Where are you getting your K2? Where are you getting your choline? Where are you getting your creatine? Where are you getting your carnitine? You're answering your taurine, your B12, your folate, your riboflavin, et cetera. Even if you say you're eating a little bit of fish and chicken with that diet, it's not going to be enough. You're going to be missing out. You're not eating organs. Why, where are you getting all the benefits of organs? Where are you getting the benefits of CoQ10 and heart and the liver with biotin and folate and riboflavin? All of those, that is what makes a longevity full. That is what, that's what makes a really long-lived longevity embodying human, somebody that has all the nutrients. So how can a diet that is bereft in those nutrients lead to longevity? That doesn't make any sense to me and it's not supported by the research either. So I have some major problems with these assertions that he's making. And again, I love him and I want to debate him in a friendly way. So hopefully we'll make that happen. I want to share a couple of other epidemiology studies that I glanced, uh, I glanced toward earlier in this little introductory discussion. Uh, vegetarian diet and all-cause mortality, evidence from a large population-based Australian cohort. This is epidemiology. But as you can see here, um, there was also no significant difference in mortality risks. This is not longevity, but it's mortality risk between pesco-vegetarians, people eating uh, fish and vegetables, or semi-vegetarians, which is basically veg vegetables, probably dairy and eggs, versus regular meat eaters. We found no evidence that following a vegetarian diet, semi-vegetarian diet, or a pesco-vegetarian diet has an independent protective effect on all-cause mortality. Again, the study is right here to be seen. So this is not supported by the research, but it is something that is, I would believe, incorrectly insinuated by much of this discussion um, on these other podcasts. So mortality in vegetarians compared to non-vegetarians in the United Kingdom is the name of this study. And if you read the conclusions, the United Kingdom-based vegetarians and comparable non-vegetarians have similar all-cause mortality. So where is the longevity benefit of avoiding meat in these studies? Where is it? it? It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And I just want to frame this discussion with the understanding, perhaps with the fear, that many discussions of longevity are things that we will never know if they are true. Many of us will not be around in 80 or 100 years or even 60 years to know if 
any of these things had any effect on your longevity. This is the problem with discussing longevity is what I am sure of is that eating meat, eating organs makes me feel vital every day, strong, healthy, mentally stable, mentally clear, creative. You know, I have libido. I have courage to go face waves. I have an interest in living life. What I don't know is if limiting my meat or limiting my calories will make me live two or three years longer. And I'm not sure I'd ever even make that trade. I don't think it would even do that, but I wouldn't even make that trade. If you've seen examples of people who calorie restrict, they're often wearing five or six t-shirts because they're so skinny and they're so cold all the time. Their thyroid is shut down. This isn't what you want to do. I don't know that David is necessarily suggesting caloric restriction, but what he is suggesting is eliminating or limiting meat. And I think that's going to lead to less than optimal life for so many humans, even if it could, and I don't believe it will, even if this could extend your life by a year or two or five, would you take that trade? I believe that's a Faustian bargain. I would not in a million years. I would rather live 95 years, vital, strong, and be surfing until I'm 94 and 364 days then live to 100 and be decrepit for the last 40 years of my life with things that we know about. Increased risk of bone fractures, increased risk of osteoporosis from low protein diets. All these things are very common. Nutrient deficiencies, infertility. These are critically important concepts to consider when you are going to go down or going to fall into line with the church of anti-meat for the sake of longevity. That's probably not something that's ever gonna get delivered on. That's an empty promise in my opinion. Then people say, Paul, what about the blue zones? What about the blue zones? What about the blue zones? I have a whole podcast on the blue zones, guys, but I want to make a couple of important points. If you look at the five blue zones, which are essentially cherry-picked regions of the globe by Dan Butner, Ikaria in Greece, Sardinia in Italy, Okinawa in Japan, Loma Linda in California, and the Nicoya region of Costa Rica, where I happen to live right now in the Nicoya region of Costa Rica, four out of those five regions of the world, red meat is treasured and eaten with zeal. Icaria, Sardinia, Okinawa, Nicoya, everywhere here people eat red meat and they eat more animal food than their uh, neighbor, neighbors. In Loma Limda, red meat is avoided because that is a region where the Seventh-day Adventists have a large community. That is a primarily vegetarian, pesco-vegetarian, and vegan community. But that is a region of longevity. What Dan Butner forgot to tell you about Loma Linda, even though the people in Loma Limda live seven years longer than the average Californian, Loma Linda's in California, so do Californian Mormons. But Californian Mormons don't shun meat. What the Loma Lindens and the Californians do is they all shun tobacco and alcohol and probably other dangerous things due to their religious preferences. So is it the meat that's causing the longevity advantage in Loma Linda? I would say absolutely not. It's probably the other healthy behaviors. That is a pattern that we see over and over and over. You can look at the UK shopper study, which will illustrate that exact point. In that study in the UK, vegans versus Standard, uh, the standard mortality ratio, the vegans had a better mortality. But when they broke it down and they compared vegans to omnivores who were doing healthy behaviors, that is working out, going in the sun, they had the exact same longevity, the exact same mortality, at least. There was no mortality benefit to being a vegan compared to an omnivore that was doing good, healthy behaviors. So, so much of this mortality, so much of this longevity is based on our healthy behaviors. Get in the sun, go exercise, don't lead a stressful life. We know that leading a stressful life increases the epigenetic aging of humans. And we know that healthy behaviors, exercise and being in the sun can also increase other longevity metrics like telomeres. So get enough nutrients, but also do those things as well. So it's important to realize that the blue zones are a myth. And by that, I mean, in four out of the five, meat is eaten 
exclusive, like extensively is the right word there. In Okinawa specifically, there's a great paper that I'll show you in one moment, which shows that there were no centenarians among the vegetarians in Okinawa. And as this paper that I'll show you right now shows, in Loma Linda, among the, among the vegetarians, the sperm characteristics were horrible. So this is what I'm talking about. If you want to be a vital, fertile, libidinous human that has a healthy libido and likes to live a, a basically a full life that is strong and vital, I don't think you want to live like these guys in this blue zone. The study showed that the vegetables-based diet decreased sperm quality. In particular, a reduction in sperm quality in male factor patients would be clinically significant, would require a view. Further, inactivated, in, inadequate sperm hyperactivation in vegans suggested compromised membrane calcium selective channels. Uh, that's not good, guys. That's not good. I've joked about this before. If Lomalin is a blue zone, I don't know what's blue there. Maybe it's some blue balls or something. Who knows? But that's, that's crazy, guys. That's not good. That's not what you want. And then I want to show you a couple of other papers that do talk about the other blue zones and how they meet if you want to go down this rabbit hole. Determinants of all-cause mortality and incidence of cardiovascular disease, 2009 to 2013 in older adults. This is the Icaria of the blue zone study. If you look at this study, you can look at what they eat. <laughs> Clearly, they eat meat in Icaria. So why has it become the narrative that these are plant-based zones? I have no idea. That is what the media does. Here is the study from the Japanese centenarians, nutrition for the Japanese elderly. And if you read through the study, what you will find is that there were no centenarians among vegetarians. So what I fear is happening is that there are a lot of empty promises being made in the nutrition space right now that don't make any sense evolutionarily. Meat and organs have always been at the center of the human diet. If you can't get fresh organs, get desiccated organs like we make at Hardened Soil Supplements, but get organs in your diet. Eat meat, eat liver, eat heart, eat testicle, eat ovary, eat lung, eat kidney, eat spleen, and tell me you're not thriving like you've never thrived before. There are so many people who are thriving in this way, and we are being, we're really being propagandized, and I think it's all from a good place. I, like I said, I really like David. I think he's a great human, but I think he's just misled in this sense. He said that he loves steak. He loves the taste of steak. And so my goal is to convince David Sinclair to start eating steak again with me. And then maybe he will understand the benefits of this type of food. I think he's doing it because he believes it's going to shorten his life or it'll, the absence of steak, the inclusion of more fruits and vegetables in his diet will lengthen his life. And it's my mission to show him that he's missing a few things and he's not collecting the dots. He's a brilliant researcher, but I think he's taking a lot of things out of context and forgetting where we've come from as humans. I believe he's forgotten where we've come from as humans. This is what the remembering is all about, guys. So hopefully that little bit of context and update about how I feel about the nutrition space, about longevity, about meat, about mTOR, about iron, about plants, and about xenohormesis will be helpful for this conversation. Um, enjoy the rest of this conversation, which is, again, a repost from my 2019 conversation with David Sinclair. And um, I'm hopefully going to get him back on. But just so it's totally clear... I am no fan of plant molecules. I am no fan of xenohormesis. Plants are better medicine than they are food. You can get all the nutrients you need to thrive from meat and organs and fruit and honey and raw dairy. This is an animal-based diet. And I believe then you get so many fewer toxins and you will get all the nutrients and that a vegetarian plant-based diet will be nutrient deficient and that that will lead to a decreased longevity in the end. And that's what we're fighting for is a quality of life and an increased longevity we just go about it different ways. So we'll see who wins, I suppose. On to the next part of the podcast. All right, we are live. David Sinclair, my man, thanks for being here. I'm so stoked. I'm excited too. Thanks for having me on, Paul. Yeah. Now, people may not know the backstory, but 
I, we met a few weeks ago. We were both in Los Angeles filming for the Model Health Show. And I was kind of like had my back to Sean Stevenson's, you know, recording studio. And I, I heard, I knew there was somebody else recording before me. And then I heard, I heard, I heard a voice and I heard this accent and I was like, and I heard you guys talking about aging or something. And I kind of peeked around the corner and was like, that's David Sinclair. And I was like, how cool is that? And I just went up to you. Yeah. And you came up to me and said, why the heck aren't you coming on my podcast? And I said, exactly. let's talk about it. Right. So here we are. And, and so here we are, the universe connected us. And so one of the things that, one of the first things you said to me when we were talking was that you thought that when we ate was more important than what we ate. And maybe that's a good place to start this discussion. We're going to go down some amazing rabbit holes right. and listeners to this podcast are in store for some mind expanding stuff. But like, let's just unpack that statement a little bit because I think that it'll connect to a lot of things. Right. Well, as, as you know, I think um, all, all listeners here will know that nutritionists go back and forth all the time about what we should eat, whether it's, you know, cut back carbs, cut back fat, God forbid, cut, cut back protein. Uh, but there are, there's evidence for all of these and it's very, very confusing. Right. And I found it liberating and enlightening uh, when a fairly recent study came out that made a lot of sense and actually put it into perspective. And this is a study by my good friend down at the National Institutes of Health um, in Bethesda, Rafael de Cabo. And he was trying to figure out what's the best combination of nutrients. Now, admittedly, these are mice and we can debate and argue we're not, we're not mice, but it's, it's a good start, right? We can't do these kinds of experiments easily in people just yet. It's too, too expensive and long. But in the mice, what he found was that uh, in 10,000 mice, he changed the ratio of protein, carbs, fat, and they all lived the same length of time. It was a shock to us because he and I and all of our colleagues thought one's going to turn out to be better. And it was actually driven by the calorie restriction study in monkeys that showed some monkeys lived longer on calorie restriction, some didn't, and they had a variety of differences in their diet. Long story short, the only group of mice, no matter what they ate, that lived longer, substantially longer, were mice that only had food for two hours a day. And they still ate a fair amount of food, it's just that they were time restricted in their feeding. And that blew me away when I read that, that was last year, but over the years, it really has fit with a lot of work that we've done with Rafa and, and others in humans that, that when you eat, um, maybe just as important, perhaps even more important than what we put in our mouths. So why do you think this is happening? So what is the connection between what some might call time-restricted eating, time-restricted feeding, intermittent fasting? What's going on here? What's the underlying mechanism of compressing the feeding window in these mice or maybe in humans and a longevity benefit? Yeah. Well, we were the first lab here um, we're here at, I'm here at Harvard Medical School today. Uh, we were the first lab to figure out for any species how calorie restriction actually works. And it, there's not one answer, of course, but in principle, what we figured out was that it wasn't just that metabolism was changing or, as we used to think, was slowing down and generating fewer free radicals. It was a real breakthrough and revelation to realize that even in yeast cells, and now we know in our bodies, when you're hungry, your body turns on what we call longevity genes. The genes that I have worked on my whole career since we first linked them to aging in the 1990s. 
uh, are called the sirtuins. There are seven of them in the body. And we have shown over the years that they respond to being hungry. And the hungrier you are without malnutrition, the better they fight against aging and diseases of aging. And so in this study that your colleague did with the rats or the mice that were fed in a small window, were they calorie restricted or did they, were they isocaloric and in a smaller amount of time? Uh, they were, now I didn't need to go back and check, but Rafa usually tries to make them isocaloric. Um, you, so what I can say for sure is that usually when you give mice uh, restricted, uh, time-restricted food, they eat it all really quickly and end up eating um, about 90% of what they would eat if they were given food all the time. And I, I don't know if they're isocaloric. I think that would be the best way to do that experiment. Um, but yeah, we should, we should actually check that. That's important. Because that would be an interesting question. You know, is it the caloric restriction? <clears throat> because we're going to get into all these mechanisms. And I think a lot of my listeners will know of some of these experiments and some of this idea. But yes, this concept of caloric restriction turning on genetic pathways in yeast, C. elegans, which is a worm, fruit flies, mice, is so fascinating. And, and really, you've been at the center of this, and it's really been the thread that's caused so many things to fall out of it. And, and we've seen so many interesting genetic pathways come out of this. But I think that the, the questions around um, if you can be iso, if, if, if the benefits of caloric restriction can be gained by compressing the feeding window with the same amount of calories, that would be interesting too. Yeah, it, it really looks like that's true. And it's not so much the, the satiety that you get from, from eating. It's the period when you're not eating that's critical. Mm -hmm. And I've, uh, I've recently taken uh, that to heart and started wearing a glucose monitor just to see if I really am fasting um, long enough to keep my blood glucose very low. Uh, no, not so low that I'm going to fall over, of course. We don't want that. Uh, and I've learned some very interesting things that, uh, I, I actually, I make a lot of glucose from my liver when I'm waking up and mm -hmm. it makes sense. Um, it makes sense that I never liked breakfast. I didn't need it. I wasn't hungry. I felt sick if I ate it, a big meal. And uh, so I skip breakfast now. I skip lunch if I can. Um, depends on my level, level of stress. I'm a stress induced eater, unfortunately. Uh, but my, my main calories are once a day at night. Do you ever check ketones? Do you know how your ketones are in the fasting you know, window? I want to. I want you to. Our, to. Our friend Peter Atia does that. And I, do you do that? I do it all the time. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, so you recommend it? Absolutely. Well, I think it would be interesting. I think that we'll get to ketones later on in this discussion. And that's kind of a preview of where it's going is the effect of ketones on sirtuins and stuff as well. But I think that would be totally uh, congruent with all the things you're thinking about. So, so let's talk about all of this. So Let's back up one step and I'll ask you a very interesting question, which I think that you can provide a very unique answer to. What causes us to age? And this is going to tie back into sirtuins and calorie restriction for the listener, but what causes us to age? And we may not fully know the answer, but what's going on here? Uh, well, it's debated. Um, we let's do it historically very quickly. So we used to think that free radical damage and DNA damage was the main cause. Right. It's been, very hard to reconcile that with a lot of data. You, you can basically tr cause a mouse to have a hundred times more mutations and it, it lives fine. It doesn't get old, get old. So that's confusing. Uh, then in the two thousands, as, as I mentioned, we started to, to realize there were these longevity genes that protect, protected us against a variety of causes of aging. 
which scientists don't like to use the word cause because it's a bit too committed, uh, too much of a commitment. So we call these the hallmarks of aging. Uh, things like, and there are about eight of them, uh, mitochondrial dysfunction, loss mm -hmm. of stem cells, senescent cells, the zombie cells, um, nutrient deregulation. Um, there's there's a bunch. Uh, telomere shortening is 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 the ends of chromosomes is a is a well known one, and th they were drawn in a nice pie chart, and we all as scientists in the field said yes we fi we figured it out we know what causes aging, um, but I've never been satisfied with a, with a laundry list that doesn't feel pure enough to me. Uh, I, I I envy physicists who can boil science down to an equation. Um, and so I thought and thought about it, and I thought about the sirtuins. And if you look at the name sirtuins, these genes that I've been working on, the first three letters are a giveaway, I think. Silent information regulator. And these silent information regulators, the second word is information. And so the more I studied it, the more I thought about <coughs> it, uh, I came to the, I wouldn't say conclusion, but very strong gut feeling as a scientist that it's a loss of information that causes uh, probably all of those hallmarks of aging uh, and, and aging itself. And so that this could be the very upstream uh, part of the river. And instead of tackling these tributaries and putting eight dams on eight tributaries, we may be able to go upstream and block them all. Um, we have some evidence. We've been doing this for quite a while, over 10 years now, testing this hypothesis with some papers we've just put up online. So uh, listeners can can go check those out. They're available now. But essentially, we disrupted the information in the cell, and uh, and these mice got old. And every aspect of those hallmarks of aging in that pie chart, they happen. And so that argues that we found the major cause. And this information you're talking about is epigenetic change, right? This is methylation and the the other factors that are on the DNA. So let's talk about that a little bit and then we'll wrap it back to sirtuins. But so what's this information you're talking about and how is this information encoded in our DNA if it's not if it's not if it's not DNA breaks, if it's not DNA damage to the actual ladder of DNA, what's the information that's being lost? Uh, well there's there's two types of information in the cell. Uh, and they're both essential for life. We'd we'd all be dead in, in a second without it. The first we know of, uh, we study this at school, it's our parents' gift to us, it's the, the genome, the DNA molecule. And, and DNA is four letters, it's, it's a digital code, it's very robust, you can extract DNA from, from mummies, it, it lasts for a long time. And I actually, and my colleagues think that DNA is largely intact in our bodies, even when we're very old. So that the genetic information is there to be young, and we, we actually know this already, because you can take a a skin cell or an udder cell and, and clone it and make a new animal so that the genetic information is, is still there. But there's this other type of information, uh, which Paul, you said is called epigenetic. And epigenetic uh, is a lot of different things to different people, but essentially they're the systems in the cell that tell it how to read the right genes to be a nerve cell or a skin cell um, and stay that way. You don't want your nerve cells turning into skin cells uh, that's what would happen if you disrupted the epigenome. And actually, that's what we think is going on during aging, that we're losing the epigenetic information that allowed us to develop in the womb to a beautiful uh, baby. Um, and that over time, um, 
marks on the DNA called methyls, as well as other changes to how the DNA is looped around inside the nucleus are lost over time. Um, but DNA damage is, is part of it. Um, when we go out in the sun, we get DNA damage. If we have chemotherapy or, yeah, and radiotherapy, we damage DNA. And we see that that accelerates this loss of epigenetic information. So in some ways they're connected. So there was this DNA theory of aging, right? That DNA damage was creating aging. And this kind of, this wraps it back into it, saying that if you're getting more DNA breaks, whether they're single-stranded or double-stranded, what you might actually be having is loss of epigenetic coding, loss of epigenetic information that is methylation on histones and a variety of other proteins around which DNA is wrapped, and that that might be sort of the arbiter of aging. Yeah, I couldn't have put it better myself. And we do see those changes during aging. We now have the tools in the lab to read those loops and those, those bundles of DNA that tell mm -hmm. a cell how to perform its functions and stay young. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's really quite tragic to see those things unravel uh, when we cut their DNA or we let them age. And interestingly, if we cut their DNA and let it heal, one cut's not going to age them rapidly. But if we do that over three weeks, we will end up with a mouse that's 50% older. And that clock, the methylation clock that forms on the DNA, that's also 50% older. We can read that. So these mice are not just looking old. They're hunched and gray and they have all sorts of diseases that, are, that we typically characterize as, as aging-related diseases. They also are literally older. If I gave you that mouse and you analyzed it, you'd say it's an old mouse. Um, and so it, as I wrote in my book, if you can give something, you can take it away. And we have been working for a number of years on that. So how do you age these mice? Are you inducing DNA breaks? Or are you inducing something that pulls off methyl groups from the epigenetic level? Yeah, so the amazing thing is we're not, we're not touching their, their, um, their methyls. We're not touching the mitochondria. We're not touching telomeres. What we do is we, what we realized in yeast cells back, these little you know, budding yeasts to make bread and beer, that when they get old, they have a lot of DNA breaks. And those distract the sirtuins from their protective role. And they go from one place on the genome to help repair the DNA, like the Army Corps of Engineers would if you know there's a hurricane. But not all of them go back to where they came from. And if you do that lots of times, or keep having hurricane after hurricane, the genes that the sirtuins should be regulating become dysregulated. And we think that is a model for why we age. Now, there's more than sirtuins involved. It's going to take us another decade to figure out all the major players and actually how the DNA methyls change in response to this ping pong game. But I think we're onto something because just by cutting the DNA of these mice and not causing mutations, not causing cancer, but by disrupting those loops and packages, uh, we do get aging. And so you're introducing things which cause single strand or double strand breaks in the DNA. And we've talked about sirtuins a lot. So we're going to dive deep into sirtuins in a moment. The sirtuins are a molecules that are sitting on the chromosomes, you said, and they have this D-acetylase, D-acylase role. And they're, they're, in some ways, they're sort of affecting whether genes are being turned on and off. And so when you're creating the breaks, the sirtuins get distracted from their role in controlling epigenetics 
having to participate in DNA repair. And that might be why the epigenetics is changing in a negative way. Did I get that right? Yeah, that was perfect. And uh, you might ask, well, why, why have the sirtuins moved to DNA breaks? Why don't we just leave them where they should be? And what I've, I've proposed is that they leave their posts because turning on these other genes when they move, so these come on now, is a stress response, a survival response that stops the cell dividing and changes metabolism so that they survive long enough for this repair to happen. And then they reset and go back to normal living. The problem is that works well when you're young, but as you get older and older, it screws up the epigenome and you lose that original structure, that epigenetic information. So just so people understand the whole context here, we highlighted this a little bit, but let's do it again. What causes DNA breaks? What is distracting the sirtuins? What is causing this in humans, right? This yeah. is fascinating. You mentioned some of them. Sunlight we know can do it a little bit, but we know we need some sunlight to be good. Radiation, and just by being on the planet, we get ambient radiation, so that can break DNA. What else can break DNA? Toxins. Uh, well, I, I mentioned um, a lot of drugs do, unfortunately. Yeah, a lot um, of molecules. Yeah, so chemotherapy drugs mm -hmm. are designed to break DNA, many of them, because uh, cancer cells are more susceptible to broken DNA because they're trying to replicate so fast. Um, so unfortunately, chemotherapy can accelerate aging and the clock. Uh, some things that are, are avoidable, uh, a lot of x-rays mm -hmm. will break DNA. Now, we need x-rays occasionally, but uh, I wouldn't overdo it. And CT scans will break your DNA. Um, and most CT scans are done because they're looking for something that could kill you. But right. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have a CT scan uh, for a frivolous any frivolous reason. No. Uh -huh. But also there, there are chemicals in our environment. You can't avoid them. You can try to. So there's uh, the PCBs in plastic. If you microwave plastic, some chemicals, uh, the yellow dye in inkjet printers is a carcinogen. It, it binds to DNA. That's a really bad one. Don't, don't lick freshly printed paper. <laughs> uh, but you can't avoid breaks. It's, it's part of life. Every time a cell divides, um, or even if it's just sitting there, the DNA will break. Right. And it's breaking all the time. We we have about 20 trillion breaks in our body every day. Um, and what I wrote in my book is if you, if you go to the bottom of the ocean and sit in, in a lead box, you'll still have broken DNA. Um, but you can minimize it. You know, don't don't fly high in the sky and don't spend too much time in space or, or go to go to Mars if you can help it. Yeah, Mars, there would be more DNA breaks on Mars. There would be more DNA breaks at the top of Everest because of more radiation, right? Yep. So have you, I've seen the term, I've seen DNA breaks termed clastogenesis. Have you seen this term before? Um, it, it rings a bell and it, I know what it probably means. Clastogenicity. The other thing that I'll add, and this is a particular part of my research that is so fascinating, is that just as chemicals in chemotherapy can cause DNA breaks, foods we eat can cause DNA breaks, Right. And so there's a, a body of research that was done in the 80s and 90s that really hasn't been repeated much where they look, and it's in cell culture, so it's not a, pure, not a perfect model. As I talked about with my friend Tommy Wood, when we put cells in cell culture, they may be a little more likely to have DNA breaks because they get kind of fragile anyway. But there was a series of studies done in the 80s and 90s where they introduced a bunch of chemicals or molecules from food, and they looked to see which ones caused clastogenesis or DNA breaks. And one of the fascinating things for me about this is that many, many plant molecules create DNA breaks. 
And that, that, that was so fascinating to me. So things like uh, isothiocyanates, so sulforaphane creates DNA breaks. Mm. Chocolate, chocolate or cocoa polyphenols create DNA breaks. Allyl isothiocyanate creates DNA breaks. Caffic acid and chlorogenic acid in coffee create DNA breaks. So this is a fascinating hypothesis that I think we're still trying to figure out is like, wait a minute, like we know that chemotherapy can cause breaks in DNA. So we know chemicals can cause breaks in DNA. Is it possible? I don't think we know this for sure, but is it possible that some of these plants that we're taking in have toxins and that these could creating, be creating DNA breaks? That's just sort of a, an mm -hmm. aside that's germane to the stuff that I do. So we're, yeah. That, that's, that is fascinating. And we don't know if all DNA breaks are equal. Right. The breaks that we caused in our mice to accelerate their aging uh, were very precise breaks. They create what are called sticky DNA ends. So there were four letters that could come back just like a zipper pretty quickly. And so therefore they didn't create, create mutations. Uh. Um, but if you get hit with an X-ray or a cosmic ray, that's, that's a, typically a profound break that's very hard or harder at least to put back together. And it may be very different if you have different types of breaks. Um, and it may be interesting actually to figure out in our foods what kind of breaks uh, those particular molecules yeah. Yeah. I'll send, I'll send you the papers. It's quite fascinating. That's one of the hypotheses that I advance in my book coming out is that are these plant compounds creating more DNA breaks in humans? Mm -hmm. So if, when we get a DNA break, there's another enzyme that gets involved. It's called a PARP enzyme, right? So this is a poly ADP ribose polymerase. And, and should we talk about PARP a little bit and how it connects with all this? Uh, yeah. Uh, it, what's really interesting is that it works in concert with the sirtuin enzyme. Right. And they all need NAD, this molecule, right? Ubiquitous in the body. So PARP, uh, there are about fifteen or so PARP enzymes. We don't know what they all do. We're studying some of them in my lab. Uh, PARP fourteen looks pretty interesting to us. Uh, so PARP one is the one that's most studied and most important for this topic, and it's a DNA repair facilitator, and it will go to a broken DNA molecule and tell the rest of the proteins, this is a problem, come fix this, it's a marker. Um, and so you can see it come on. One of the things that we found actually is that its activity goes down with age, uh, coincident and probably caused by lower levels of NAD as, as the animals got older. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that by raising the levels of NAD, the fuel for the enzyme, PARP, uh, that we could restore the activity of uh, DNA repair. Um, and so, yeah, PARP is really important. It's often forgotten. There's a big, uh, a lot of interest about NAD, of course, and people ask me about the sirtuins, but you're the first person who's ever asked me about the PARPs, and they're, they're probably just as important for this story. Well, they seem to be super important, and I wanted to ask about the PARPs as a lead into the sirtuins because they're connected through NAD, which we're going to dig into in detail, but the way I understand it is that the name of the enzyme is poly-ADP ribose polymerase, and this isn't going to be a visual podcast for people. I know when you did a podcast with Peter Atia, he has amazing show notes that people may want to refer to, but ADP ribose is a, is a molecule that's actually part of NAD. And the PARP enzyme makes this polymer of ADP ribose on DNA. And that looked, it sounds to me like that kind of serves like a flag saying, Hey, this part of the DNA is damaged. All you guys that are going to repair it, come in here and do your work. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's well put. 
Yeah. So it's kind of making a tail or it's making a signal on the DNA. But as you suggested, in order to do that, it consumes NAD. Now, NAD, people talk about this all the time. I just want to break this down for people. NAD is nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. And it's, it's a complex molecule. I can't like, you know, gesticulate it in the air in any way that people are going to be able to tell if they're listening in person. But I would encourage people to look at the cell and look at the molecular structure of NAD, to look at the molecular structure of ADP ribose, and then to look at the structure of nicotinamide and see how this all fits together. Because basically what happens when, and correct me if I'm wrong here, when PARP goes to make these tails or these flags on the DNA, it takes NAD, nicotinamide, adenine, dinucleotide, and the, the nicotinamide molecule is cleaved off and you get these ADP ribose chains. Is that right? Yeah. And so NAD is basically nicotinamide plus ADP ribose. Again, it's it, Peter Atia would do a better job of this because he would have show notes with pictures, but it's a fascinating thing. Now, we're going to talk about nicotinamide too, but this is all pretty interesting because as you're suggesting, when PARB has to go and repair the DNA, it's consuming NAD. Let's talk about NAD a little bit. So NAD is kind of at the center of this conversation. Where does it come from? How do we make it? And what ends of this three questions and what enzymes use it? Let's, let's think, let's kind of create the framework here. Well, it, it comes from uh, vitamin B3. We make exactly. it from that pathway. Which is niacin. Nice. And it can be taken in, in as nicotinic acid or nicotinamide. They're both vitamin B3. Right. Uh, and uh, the cell takes it, it turns it into ADP ribose um, and then uh, a molecule called NMN. And NMN is then converted to NAD. So our bodies are actually destroying NAD through PARPs and sirtuins. And then they're recycling it back from nicotinamide all the time, it's called the NAD salvage pathway. Mm -hmm. uh, and we cloned uh, many of the genes for that years ago. Um, but it's really interesting because you can change the levels of NAD in a cell and, uh, and change the way it, it reacts and, and change its, its PARP activity and sirtuin activity. And uh, let's see, what else did you wanna say? What enzymes use NAD? Yeah, what enzymes use NAD? So the sirtuins, Yep. The PARPs. Yep. And about 500 other enzymes. <laughs> Lots of enzymes. But they're not, the others aren't that interesting. They are <laughs> the enzymes that people have discovered mostly in the 20th century mm -hmm. responsible for life. Mm -hmm. uh, they're important, but they're boring. These are the <laughs> enzymes that do everything. They, they make energy. They make protein. They need NAD. NAD is a, a carrier of hydrogen around right from protein to protein. And NAD goes from NAD plus, you might've seen NAD plus is the one that people like to boost. But NAD plus is converted by the cell into NADH. Right. H is a hydrogen molecule. And it's right. just a, what we call a hydrogen carrier. Right. I'm already putting people to sleep. And that's- No, no. no. That's been the problem with NAD is that it, it's, it's a pretty boring molecule. And it was up until the 1990s, probably the most boring molecule. We probably turned off a lot of kids from science trying to teach them these pathways. But then we discovered that the sirtuins are reg regulated and need NAD. And suddenly all of the, the work that we've been doing on caloric restriction and aging 
made sense. And I need to credit Lenny Garenti and Shin Emai, my great colleagues who I work with at MIT, who made that seminal discovery. Now we could link metabolism and NAD to longevity genes and longevity. Mm-hmm. And that was a real breakthrough. And I want to, I want to, we'll, we'll go into that and make it very clear to people, just so people understand, because we talked about a couple of words that people may have heard. So niacin, if you go to the store and you buy niacin, it is usually nicotinic acid. It can also be nicotinamide, which is also known as niacinamide, but those are very different molecules, right? And so there are different pathways by which nicotinamide and nicotinic acid become NAD, but they all become NAD. And so all of these are quote unquote forms of niacin or vitamin B3, but there's actually no molecule that is quote niacin. Niacin is a colloquial term that generally refers to nicotinic acid. You can also, we can also make NAD from tryptophan, but it kind of feeds over into that, that nicotinic acid pathway. And so it's so interesting because we can make NAD from niacin in our diet. And then there are, we can also make NAD from nicotinamide riboside, which is NR, which a lot of people have heard about in our diet, but there's, that's only present in small amounts. Usually nicotinic acid is the main form. And then as you suggested, there's another molecule called NMN, which is nicotinamide mononucleotide. And that is formed from NR in our body. So we, we digest NR, we absorb NR, it becomes NMN. NMN is then recycled back, is then turns into NAD. So the, there's an NAD recycling pathway here that I want people to know about. And again, I, I warned you guys, if you're still listening, we're, this is amazing stuff. And this is, but this is a technical episode, I promise you. So as you've suggested, when we have NAD, which is kind of the center of the, the molecular pathways, it can get consumed or it gets used as a cofactor by sirtuins or PARPs. And when sirtuins use NAD, they kind of do the same thing. They, they'll end up cleaving it into nicotinamide and ADP ribose, and they make an acyl ADP ribose. Again, this is like super technical, but they get this nicotinamide. And as you suggested, so when we consume NAD, with the sirtuins, we get nicotinamide. And then nicotinamide can be recycled back to NMN through the enzyme NAMPT, which we'll talk about a little bit later because it's fascinating for, to me that the function of NAMPT appears to be regulated by inflammation. Have you seen this work or a little bit about this? Yeah. Yeah, there's another fact about NAMPT that's interesting. Uh, and it's found in the bloodstream. And it seems to uh, be really acting both inside cells and as this kind of uh, blood factor that regulates uh, our body's health. Um, and so, and even, even tells our brain how to function. And so that NAMPT, that NAMPT enzyme, is, it seems like it's such a critical link because it, it recycles that nicotinamide to NMN and you get more NAD. So when we use NAD up, either via PARP enzymes to, to make the flags on DNA, or via the sirtuins, which we're going to talk more about, that NAD is degraded to nicotinamide. I heard you say something really interesting on one of, on Peter Atia's podcast. I wonder if you still feel this way. You, and I thought this made so much sense. You said, maybe it wouldn't be a good idea to take nicotinamide. And a lot of people may be taking nicotinamide as niacin, quote unquote. But from an enzymatic perspective, if you are taking nicotinamide, could that could that inhibit the, it does inhibit the sirtuins in some ways because it's kind of a feedback regulator. The sirtuins use NAD, they make nicotinamide as a byproduct. So like in any reaction in chemistry, if you put in, 
if you put in things uh, on the back end, if you put in the, you know, the products, it could inhibit the reaction. Is that right? Yeah, that was the first uh, big discovery that I made when I started my lab here at Harvard Medical School. Uh, it was a long time ago. I was only 29 years old. But we, we, what, what my student did, Kevin Bitterman, who's now a famous venture capitalist, uh, what his first experiment was, was to put nicotinamide on a plate of yeast cells and ask what happens to the sirtuins. And if they're active, they would be uh, red. And if they're not active, the yeast would turn white or stay white. And he came into my office hoping that they'd be, be red. And he was very disappointed that they were all white. And I said, Kevin, this is fantastic news. I know you haven't discovered a sirtuin activator. That took us another few years. But he found the first sirtuin inhibitor, and it was nicotinamide. And so we published that uh, in 2002. And it was really, um, it's become a tool. If you're a scientist who wants to study what happens when the sirtuins are inactive, you squirt in 10, uh, what is it, 10 millimolar nicotinamide. So that's a high level. And probably our bodies clear out nicotinamide quickly. We excrete it as methyl nicotinamide. Right. But um, I've never taken the risk of, if I look at a bottle of vitamins and it says there's a high dose of niacinamide or nicotinamide, uh, I put it back because I'm not going to take the risk that even in my throat, in my mouth, in my gut, I'm not going to inhibit the sirtuins. You really want these sirtuins and PARP to be as active as they can be all the time. It makes sense. And I don't think we should be supplementing. We can, you know, I, I think that, you know, the utility for nicotinamide riboside and NMN is very different than the utility of nicotinic acid or nicotinamide. And, um, the, but it, over the counter niacin, like I said, is usually sold as nicotinic acid, which actually becomes nicotinamide when we take it. Um, in the detoxification process. And so, but yeah, if people are taking supplements with nicotinamide, it kind of gives us pause. I don't think this is fully elucidated, but it is an interesting thing. And so one of the things you highlighted there, let's, let's recapitulate that just for a moment for people. All of these are niacin derivatives. And anytime we take extra doses of niacin, they have to be methylated to get rid of them. So as you said, nicotinamide is excreted as methyl nicotinamide. And so I will just add an asterisk of caution in anyone using NR or NMN, and we can talk about this as well. Anyone who is looking to increase their supply of NAD in the body by taking nicotinamide riboside or NMN, do you think we should keep an eye on methylation and methyl groups? Because isn't it possible that we could use up too many of the methyl groups as we're getting rid of methyl nicotinamide? And then we know that the methyl groups are needed to affect biochemistry with homocysteine, with catecholamine degradation in the brain, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So it's anecdotal right now, but to me it makes sense. And in an abundance of caution, I'm um, making sure I have enough methyls in my diet. And you can get them in a variety of ways. There's betaine, which is also known as TMG, trimethylglycine. Right, right. Um, you can buy that. I've, I've got a bit at home. You can buy it as a powder and you can just eat it. It doesn't taste too bad. Um, it's not going to hurt you as far as I'm aware. You can also, uh, and what I've shifted to do now is I take a, a combo of um, methylfolate and methyl B12, mm -hmm. which is, um, you can get on, you know, on, uh, on the internet. And uh, I, I feel 
like that is uh, my best solution to this potential problem of yeah. losing methyls to the excretion of nicotinamide. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I just wanted to add that, that if people are going to use NR or NMN, they may lose methyl groups as, as methyl nicotinamide, and that could be potentially uh, a downside. So, all right. So basically, let's wrap back into the sirtuins and, and hopefully tie this picture together for people and make some cohesive pictures. So let's talk more about the sirtuins. We, we touched on it briefly. It's a fascinating family of genes. You said there's seven genes in humans. They're very conserved across organisms, as I've heard you talk about yeast, mice, fruit flies, Drosophila, uh, well, it's with, that's fruit flies, you know, C. elegans, worms. Like these, this, is a, this is a very important family of compounds. So let's talk a little more about what the sirtuins are doing, what molecules you found that activate them. We'll get into it. So let's just tell me more about sirtuins. Okay. All right. So in, in yeast, where they came from in the first place, the name comes from sir SIR2, and uh, as I mentioned, that they're called silent information regulators, which is just a fancy name for uh, an enzyme that controls other genes and silences them, turns them off. Okay, and so now we would call these epigenetic controllers or epi epigenetic regulators. And uh, in yeast, we found that they're distracted by DNA damage, but they're also really good to have around. So if you put and Matt Cableine, um, a student who was in the lab when I was over at MIT, he put an extra copy of the SIR2 gene into yeast and they lived 30% longer. And later we figured out that that was mimicking caloric restriction. Um, and actually an interesting aside you might be interested in, Paul, is that we found that there's a, a universal regulator of the sirtuins in yeast. Um, and it's the, it's the equivalent of this NAMPT gene that we were talking about mm. circulating the body. But in yeast, what it does is this gene is turned on by too much heat, not enough food, not enough sugar. Um, pretty much anything that doesn't kill a yeast cell will make it live longer, but you need this PNC1 gene. What PNC1 does in yeast and the equivalent in humans is recycle NAD. Interesting. Right? So how cool is that? That a bit of stress will turn on NAD production which is why I recommend to people, by the way, get out of the chair, don't eat too much food because you want to stimulate the body's production of NAD. But the so, Let's pause there. Okay. Are you saying, could a, the sauna turn on NAM, NAMPT, NAMPT, the sauna do that in humans? No, we know it does it in yeast. Cells it does. Yeah, I, I don't know that for sure. I'm, I, was, I was speculating, uh. but cold will turn on the sirtuins. We know that. Uh, there's a particular sirtuin called SIRT3, which is in our mitochondria and is very good for making brown fat, which we all agree is, is good for us. Does cold turn on NAMPT? Do we know? Oh, gosh. Uh, I know exercise does, but I don't think we check cold. So these are examples of hormetics, and we'll get into that too. And somewhere, if Rhonda Patrick could hear this conversation, she would be super excited about the potential for sauna to turn on NAMPT and recycle nicotinamide into NMN and make more NAD. And as people may be hearing, the idea is that we generally want to have a high ratio of NAD to NADH in our body. Is that something you'd agree with? Yeah, I think the absolute levels of NAD are just as important as the ratio. The ratio, yeah. Yeah, because it Sirtuins don't really detect NADH at physiological levels. Uh -huh. But they detect NAD. 
get your NAD plus up. Yeah, yeah, okay. So I interrupted you, so let's continue. So you were talking about PNC1 and yeast, which is a homolog of NAMPT in humans, mm -hmm. and that that could be regulated and upregulated. Okay. Okay, so the sirtuins, um, and an, an analogy would be that they're the traffic cop in a cell. They, they do regulate genes as silences, but they do other things. In our bodies, they've evolved to do many more things. They control proteins that are involved in DNA repair, including PARP, um, the telomeres, the mitochondria, inflammation. There's a, there's a laundry list. In fact, uh, there's probably a thousand papers published on this alone um, every year now. Um, when we first started in yeast, by the way, it was, uh, I think there were two papers per year. <laughs> so it's been a wild ride. But the sirtuins are enzymes, okay? These are little Pac-Men that go around and they carry out a really interesting type of reaction. They grab NAD, they will now donate the adenine ribose to the protein that they're targeting. And typically, at least for enzymes number one, seven, uh, and six, they target the histone proteins. Now histones are the packaging proteins for DNA that bundle up the DNA and uh, typically involved in switching off genes. But um, so when they do that, they, they actually remove, and you mentioned an acetyl earlier, um, and you even said acyl. And that wasn't, that you didn't speak incorrectly. We first discovered, uh, well, other labs first discovered that you need to remove this chemical tag off, off other proteins for sirtuins to, to work, to do, their, to do their bidding, to do good. And so acetyls, it's just a carbon, group of carbon and hydrogens. It's nothing spectacular. It's a little tag that says, hey, uh, come get me. Um, and it controls how DNA is packaged as well as other things. Um, but we later realized, so Eric Verdin and others, um, he's at the Buck Institute in California, realized that, um, and I want to credit John Danu too, he's a great uh, professor and friend of mine. These guys discovered that there are other chemicals besides this acid, acetyl, uh, it's like acetic acid, an acetyl group, but there, is, uh, there are others like butyryl, all right, carbonyl, besides acetyl, acetyl groups. And I know where you're going to go, Paul. You're going to go into ketosis, I bet. To it's coming. It. <laughs> you know it's coming. I know you are. <laughs> uh, but it's a beautiful link, um, actually, because these chemical groups that are taken off by sirtuins, as you might be guessing, have a really interesting link to our metabolism. And so the sirtuins, they're deacylases, and, and they've been called deacetylases. But as, you, as I've heard you talk about in another podcast, they're actually deacylases, which is a larger group. So they're pulling off groups. Now, when I was in medical school, the mnemonic I used was methylation mute acetyl activate. And it's an oversimplification, but it's an epigenetic sort of model for when you put a methyl group on a histone or a, when you put the methyl groups on, it kind of silences a gene. When you put the acetyl group on, it might activate it. So, you, so the sirtuins, do I understand this correctly? They're moving around and they, one of their functions is to pull off the acetyl group or the acyl group. Yes. And then they, they, what do they do with the, with the adenine ribose? What do they do with the ADP ribose part of NAD? Well, it'll be acetylated or mm -hmm. acylated. Mm -hmm. uh, then it's, it's not clear. The best we could figure out, uh, so John Danu, who I mentioned, did a bit of work. Uh, looks like it might be involved in controlling inflammation. Mm -hmm. But most of it's quickly recycled uh, back okay. to its components. Okay. 
And so by doing this, the sirtuins are affecting the epigenetics. Is that correct? They're, they're pulling off these, these groups. Are they activating genes? Because I know that they activate, the sirtuins activate FOXO3, PGC1-alpha. These are super important. Oh, yeah. They're turning yeah. on genes. Is that what? Well, the and silencing. They're silencing. They're silencing. They're silencing uh-huh. proteins. Uh-huh. Um, but they do a lot of things. They can, so FOXO is a transcription factor that is involved in defenses. Uh-huh. And uh, as you mentioned, it will de-acylate or de-acetylate uh-huh. so and make it more active and go and turn on those defense genes. You want that. Uh-huh. Um, it will also downregulate inflammation by deacetylating NF-kappa B. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the histones, when it removes those acetyls, the DNA will be compacted and spooled like a garden hose on your driveway. And that turns genes off. Uh-huh. So it's turning genes on and off, the, the, the sirtuins. And it's okay. And then, you know, one of the interesting things I found was that when FOXO3 goes on, and FOXO3 is one of these mutations that people might have heard Rhonda Patrick talk about a lot, uh, there are polymorphisms in FOXO3 that are associated with longevity. And it's probably one of the most well-studied ones. And what I found was that when FOXO3 gets turned on, it, it regulates NAMPT. Is that correct, that there's a connection between FOXO3 and NAMPT? Is there? That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know FOXO regulates CERT1, but if it regulates NAMPT, that would be really great because that would explain how hormesis is working. Yeah, I read that in um, one of the papers by Eric Verdin. I'll send it to you. But I thought that was so cool that like this might be part of the mechanism, you know, that FOXO could rec- recognize or regulate NAMPT. And as we'll talk about with ketones, the beta-hydroxybutyrate has also been shown to potentially be a histone deacetylase inhibitor, have these sort of epigenetic modification capabilities, and the, H, uh, the beta-hydroxybutyrate can turn FOXO3 on as well, which is an interesting nuance. So we'll get to that. Now, when we're thinking about the sirtuins, they, they, you said something really important that I want to highlight for people they sense NAD levels. It's not so much the ratio between NAD and NADH, but they're, they're, they're NAD sensors. So when NAD levels are high, the sirtuins can be active. Is that correct? Yeah. And when, when we say the sirtuins are active, that means they're doing their job at the epigenetic, at the genomic level, at the histones. Is that what we mean when we say active? Because the, we've talked about previously, they're moving to the DNA and they're moving you know, away from uh, affecting the histone proteins. When the, when the sirtuins are active with NAD levels being high, they're doing all the roles we just talked about. Is that correct? Right, right. And, and if they're active, they can carry out DNA repair and gene silencing and controlling FOXO3 uh, without um, what we would say being limiting in their mm-hmm. um, activity. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, yeah, so they're, they're always bouncing around the cell. They're moving at 10,000 miles an hour. These aren't right. just sitting there like blobs. And the more active they are, the faster they can carry out these functions without getting distracted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why when you put in more copies of the gene for SIRT2 in yeast and SIRT1 and SIRT6 in mice, the organisms have better DNA repair uh, and they, they live longer. Mm-hmm. So they're a- more able to do their things. So... I guess the overarching hypothesis that will take some time to really fully flesh out is if sirtuins are more active, can we live longer? Can we live better? Right? Well, yeah, right. 
Well, they're not the only longevity gene, but right. for a favorite of mine, they are one of three major types of longevity gene. Um, but interestingly, that uh, we used to fight over whose longevity gene was more important. It was really <laughs> because the stakes are so low. But the the ultimate, you know, the, the old guard is now leaving the field, the vicious ones. But the we, you know, the next generation of us, and particularly our trainees, get along much better. And uh, we all now generally agree that these various genes are talking to each other. So uh-huh. FOXO3 and sirtuins are talking. Uh, mTOR, which I'm sure your listeners know about, um, and sort one are talking to each other. So yeah, it's it's a much friendlier field. I wouldn't say scientists are um, all uh, perfect human beings, uh, but it's not as bad as it was where I I would have a, a lump in my throat every time I, I would go to a conference. <laughs> so the three, you said there were three categories. What are the other candidate longevity genes. I mean, what are the competitors? I mean, sirtuins are clearly important. What else is out there? Competitors, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) No, we don't talk that way. I know. What are the other, what are the other collaborating? What are the other collaborating? Exactly. Potentiating, collaborating, best friend longevity genes. Uh, These are, uh, the other two major camps are AMP kinase Mm -hmm. and mTOR. So we can break those down if you want. Yeah, we should talk about how they're all connected. Yeah, well, so yeah, we that would be a long conversation. But but first of all, let me tell you, AMP kinase is a kinase that turns on metabolism, um, boosts mitochondrial activity, amplifies the amount of mitochondria in the body, and it also controls our blood sugar levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of the reasons why they researchers think metformin uh, works is that perhaps not directly, but indirectly, it's turning on this pathway and allowing our bodies to be more insulin sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, mTOR is um, the, the sensor for amino acids, particularly branch chain amino acids. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know we're gonna probably get into a food fight about this one. We should. But in animals at least, and even yeast cells, having lower mTOR activity makes them live longer. Right. Um, and that is naturally, um, done by having low levels of branch chain amino acids. Right. And we, we talked about this briefly when we met at the podcast, so we can go into this a little bit now, but I just want to make sure people understand how all of these are connected. Can you tie them all together for me? I mean, so AMP kinase and mTOR are kind of a seesaw, right? Like mTOR is anabolic, AMP kinase is, you know, kind of catabolic. And so if mTOR is really high, AMP kinase is kind of low and vice versa. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And, and AMP kinase is, is naturally sensing the levels of AMP in the cell. Right. And AMP is what you get when you don't have a lot of ATP, which is the chemical energy store, like right. the, the, the battery pack. Uh, and so our mitochondria are constantly turning AMP um, and ADP into ATP um, by adding phosphates. That's the the dye and the triphosphate on there. And that bond is, is a great store of, of energy for the cell. And when you have a lot of AMP, you don't have much of these phosphate bond energies around to do other stuff. Mm-hmm. And so AMP kinase, when it senses we don't have enough energy, it says, okay, rev up the system, you know, start stoking the mitochondrial fires more to build up our ATP stores. Because without ATP, we are, we're all dead in about 30 seconds. Right. 
Does AMP kinase also turn on PGC1-alpha? Because I know the sirtuins turn on PGC1-alpha and PGC1-alpha, I mentioned it earlier, kind of off the cuff. My listeners are probably all asleep right now. I hope not, you guys. But PGC1-alpha regulates mitochondrial biogenesis. And so it's one of these transcription factors that we all kind of get excited about thinking, oh man, if more mitochondria are being produced, you know, I, I've got the feeling that AMP kinase is connected with PGC1-alpha too in the back of my mind, but we could confirm that. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's generally a given. It's not something I read about because it's in all the textbooks that MP kinase is regulating PGC1 alpha. Yeah. Uh, one one link between SIRT1 and uh, AMPK is a protein called LKB1. Uh-huh. LKB1 is the kinase that regulates and boosts AMP kinase activity. Okay. Okay. SIRT1 is deacetylates LKB1 so that it can now turn on AMP kinase. Right. So that when you have high NAD, you're going through this pathway, LKB1 to MP kinase, AMP kinase, and you're turning on this. And so, yeah, it's, it's impossible, actually, to tweak one pathway and not affect the other two. Right. And that's why it's so, I wouldn't say confusing, but, but interesting these days because we're at the point where we know these things exist, but we don't know in our bodies the best way to tweak each of these to be optimal. Uh-huh. Yeah. So let's, let's just go down that rabbit hole a little further, then we'll circle back to mTOR because I know we want to talk about it. So I think to like, to kind of summarize what we've talked about, and I'm realizing now that, that this could be a six hour conversation and, you know, that, that, that's amazing because I look forward to more of these with you, but I'm just trying to make it somewhat digestible for listeners and also give them the real science behind it. It seems very clear from what we know or from what I'm understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, that activating the sirtuins is a good thing, that activating AMP kinase some of the time is a good thing, and that these are connected, and that those that these genes are then turning on other genes, FOXO3, PGC1-alpha, which may control things like NAMPT, which, which seem to have good effects on aging, epigenetics, and longevity. And that is all kind of tied to this NAD amount. And that's why there's so much interest in NAD, because one of the ways that we can turn on sirtuins is by increasing the NAD in our cells. And we can, we probably don't have time in this podcast to talk about cellular partitioning of NAD, uh, but, you know, and there are different, and there are different sirtuins in different places in the cell. There's mitochondrial and nuclear, right? And things like this, but like there's basically at a very broad level, it seems like when our NAD stores are high, sirtuins sense this. And the reason we care about NAD is because we want to turn the sirtuins on. Did that, did I tie that together reasonably? Yeah, you, you did. And one of, you reminded me, one of the papers that we published, um, uh, folks can look it up. It's in the journal cell. It's available. Uh, I think 2008, um, we found that mitochondrial NAD levels are really, really important. And we could boost them up by, over-expressing, turning on one of these NAMPT genes that makes NAD um, and makes it in in the mitochondria. What was exciting about the discovery was that as long as we kept the mitochondrial NAD levels high, even though the cell was really damaged, we could hit it with DNA damage pretty hard. It didn't die. And we couldn't even detect the ATP, which is the energy required for life, so we called it the mitochondrial oasis hypothesis, which is as long as your mitochondria are active, you're not going to die as a cell, which I think is really interesting. 
I mean, it could be that if you've had a massive injury, let's say you just had a stroke or uh, a trauma of some sort, if, as long as you can keep your mitochondrial NAD high, you should be able to keep all your cells alive rather than dying. Um, and cell death in something like a stroke is, is the major problem. And so there's great interest in these compounds, NMN and NR, to raise NAD, but there are other ways we can raise NAD as well, right? This is sort of my interest in ketosis. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, you, you should be able to educate us. Ketosis will raise NAD? It does. Are you... So there's a paper that I, uh, from uh, 2018, the title of the paper is Ketogenic Diet Modulates NAD-Dependent Enzymes and Reduces DNA Damage in the Hippocampus. And so what they found in this experiment, it was mice, and they put the mice on ketogenic diets, and they found that within two days, um, levels of PARP1 and the DNA damage decreased and declined fully after three days, and they saw levels of NAD increase with a ketogenic diet. So this was kind of my fascinating question. And then there's another interesting paper I found called um, Ketones Improve Apolipoprotein E4-Related Memory via SIR2 and 3. And this was also done in um, uh, transgenic mice, so ApoE4 transgenic mice. And when they put them on a ketogenic diet, they saw increases in CERT3 um, along with beta-hydroxybutyrate. They gave them beta-hydroxybutyrate in this study, and they found increases in the NAD to NADH ratio and um, benefits in terms of protection, in terms of learning and memory for these mice. So the question becomes, we can increase NAD by taking NR and MN aren't we also increasing NAD by being in a ketogenic state? Right. And in the time that you said that, I've looked up the paper. Um, it's super interesting. It's a human study looking at um, magnetic resonance spectroscopy. So this, is, this doesn't lie. This is real. And it's in humans, not mice. Which one is this? Uh, I'm looking at um, the one from 2018. Oh. Got that one? And so it's... Yeah. it's Ketosis increases NAD, NADH ratio in healthy human brain. Oh, this is a diff different paper. Oh, different paper. Okay. Yeah. A whole nother paper. Yeah. The other one I was talking about was in uh, mice and rats. Yeah. But yeah, this, this is... Even better. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, based on that, I would say it's super, in super interesting that ketosis is going to potentially simulate or stimulate the same pathways um, as caloric restriction and exercise would. Right. And so this goes back to kind of what I asked you at the beginning, you know, like you could, um, by checking ketones between meals now for you, you could get a sense. I mean, those, that beta hydroxybutyrate that you're going to measure, that is probably affecting epigenetics. We know that beta hydroxybutyrate itself has epigenetic roles. Like I mentioned earlier, it's an HDAC1 inhibitor. So histone deacetylase inhibitor as well. And it can affect FOXO3 and potentially NAMPT. I need to find more research. I don't know if anybody's looked at beta-hydroxybutyrate and NAMPT, but um, the like, this is kind of another hypothesis that I advance in my book that there are multiple ways to get these benefits and a ketogenic diet might be one of them. I call it living a radical life. And we actually kind of talked about that earlier because the other things I advocate for are sauna, cold stress, exercise, 
you know, and ketosis, these, these seem like these can turn on the same sorts of genes. Yeah, I think uh, you might be onto something here. And, uh, and not only that, these, um, these ketones such as uh, butyrate, uh, they are also uh, relevant to the epigenome uh, because histones can be what's called butyrylated. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so what, what we, we've now realized is that these ketones and NAD are very ancient molecules. And uh, the body has evolved, even yeast cells, to really adapt to what, what's coming in as food and modulate the epigenome in response. And now we, four billion years later, are, uh, are figuring out, hey, if we just modify our diet in certain ways, we can trick the body into thinking that times are going to be tough, that we're running out of food or that we're, we're getting chased by a saber-toothed tiger, and our bodies will fight for us against aging. Yeah, isn't that cool that we could do that in different ways? And maybe, yeah, maybe a ketogenic diet would be that way. And there's lots of research on ketones that we'll have to dive into in part two that look at the ways that they might be protective and they make these protective changes. There are still questions, I think, for humans, whether we should be in ketosis all the time and whatnot. And maybe we should loop Peter Atia into this conversation as well. But um, it's a fascinating idea, right? That, And this is kind of what I said to you when we bumped into each other at Sean Stevenson's podcast. It's like, what about doing this with ketones, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, so speaking of, of um, modulating, uh, I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. And what I see in studies in humans, looking at my own body, mouse studies, is that there's no one diet or one thing that you want to be doing all the time. It's, it's a, not just moderation. It's doing it in a pulsatile fashion that seems to work the best. I'll give you an example. Uh, we put mice on resveratrol. Uh, you know, we, we became known for that in uh, the early 2000s. It worked, resveratrol worked best when we gave it to the mice every other day and when we fed them every other day, okay? And if we gave it to them every day in the food, it didn't work as nearly as well as this other regime. Um, you know, we know we don't want to run every day. We're not going to go to the gym and lift a lot of weights every day. We need to give our bodies a rest. Right. So what I do with my body is, you know, I don't mind if, you know, one day I eat a certain type of food or one day I, I eat two meals a day instead of hopefully one. Um, I'm okay with that as long as my body never becomes complacent. I heard you talk about on Peter Atia's podcast, the alternate day dosing of resveratrol. So interesting. And for people, we haven't, we probably won't have time to get into resveratrol in detail in this podcast, but resveratrol is a modulator of the sirtuins. And that was kind of one of your groundbreaking discoveries was this molecule in wine that turns on the sirtuin genes, right? Yeah, so resveratrol is the, the accelerator pedal and the NAD is the, is the gas for the enzyme. Mm -hmm. They work together to make a super active enzyme. Mm -hmm. And we have a theory that, that plant molecules that are produced by stressed plants are uh, like resveratrol, and there's a whole bunch of them. We call these xenohormetic molecules for xeno meaning other species and hormetic meaning what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Um, and so it could be that in our foods, when we eat stressed plants, plants that have been dehydrated or too much UV light, or these kind of things, uh, you know, grapes that are picked um, and bottled or infected with fung fungus or fungi. Fungi, yeah. Yeah, these are... Uh, 
the best way to get these molecules into the body. But he, here's one thing. So the, the work um, was, was very popular. It was in the media a lot, actually. You know, I was on 60 Minutes and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I, we got into a, a fight. I was sandwiched between the two largest pharmaceutical companies fighting basically over a patent that we filed. <laughs> and they tried to invalidate our research, uh, which was fairly depressing at the time. It's now, uh, what, over 10 years ago, and the field has you know, corrected itself, resveratrol is an, is an activator of CERT1, don't worry. And we have a lot of data that, that we, we published and we're gonna be publishing, saying that we were right in the, in the first place, and this was just, a, unfortunately, a, a dis distraction. Um, but yeah, I wanted to mention that because I'm often told by people, oh, that, that wasn't right, what you published, and you know, that's, that hurts when people say that because right. it was right. Um, but the, you know, often the, often the mainstream media has other things to be reporting on than somebody who's just proven themselves to be right. Yeah. It's gotta be tough when you spend like blood, sweat and tears and then, you know, financial interests or political interests try and take that away from you. That's super frustrating. So I still take resveratrol. Um, the moment I stop taking resveratrol, I'll let you all know. <laughs> Um, but I've seen no reason uh, not to at this point and only benefits. Can I make a counterpoint to the idea of xenohormesis? This is quite interesting. So I would, I see this a little differently. I think that there are plant compounds and I talk about this in my book, which is coming out in a few months, you guys, there, there are plant compounds that have benefit in some mm, pathways in the human body. But what's so interesting for me is that when I look deeper into the plant compounds, if we look other places in the human body, the plant compounds are also doing negative things. It's kind of like any pharmaceutical drug. We would not be surprised if a pharmaceutical drug, whether it's ibuprofen or Aleve or a chemotherapeutic agent, maybe that's not the best idea. Uh, Aleve and ibuprofen are good examples. They do some things we like them to do and they do other things we don't like them to do. And I think plant molecules are no different. And I, I push back against the concept of xenohormesis a little bit because many of the benefits that, that are the purported benefits of plant molecules are things we can also achieve by living well. This is kind of the radical life conversation that we had, like with the sirtuins. And you know better than I, if we can activate, or we may not know this from experiments, whether we can activate sirtuins to the same extent that we can with resveratrol with ketosis. But the argument that I make in the book is, hey, look, like if we look hard enough, the plant molecules have damaging effects in other places in the body. Curcumin is another good example. They do things that are good, but then they also have bad effects. So forfane is the same way. That, and I, what I worry about are these collateral side effects. Mm -hmm. If the beneficial effect is something we can get by living well in the first place, right? It's kind of a redundant effect. <clears throat> I'll illustrate it quickly with sulforaphane. My listeners have probably heard me say this a million times, but sulforaphane we know is an isothiocyanate. We talked a little bit about this earlier. There, these molecules have been shown in cell culture to actually make DNA breaks, but they also activate the NRF2 pathway in the liver, which makes more glutathione. And so in short-term studies, isothiocyanates do look like they may protect us against DNA damage because of the glutathione that's produced, perhaps. But the sulforaphane has this other negative side effect then that we're never told about, which is that it inhibits the uptake of iodine at the level of the thyroid and does other negative things in the body, kind of because it's like, it's this foreign molecule. We've never seen it. It's all these like molecular side effects to these plant molecules that I worry about. 
Curcumin is kind of the same way. It does have some efficacy as an anti-inflammatory, probably affecting prostaglandin pathways. I'm not sure the mechanism is completely known, but it also can affect DNA topoisomerase 2 and um, can affect the, a potassium channel called the HERG channel, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of my pushback against the, the plant molecules and xenohormesis is we just need to make sure we're seeing the entire the entirety of what they're doing in the human body because they often have negative side effects elsewhere. Does that make sense? Uh, well, yeah, it might be an, one of the alternative explanations for why they do good things because perhaps when they we first encountered them, they did bad things, and then we evolved ways to to boost our defenses to to neutralize them. Yeah, I just worry that they're still doing bad things. Well, I'm still alive. I have to take a fair amount of resveratrol experiments ongoing. Yeah. Uh, I don't know of resveratrol doing anything really bad, um, but you know, you don't, I don't know everything. So the one thing that's interesting about the resveratrol story is, so we made a mouse that couldn't be activated by CERT1. We just changed one amino acid in, in the enzyme. And now we could ask the question, does resveratrol work in that mouse? And that's basically my final uh, word in this, in this story to, to the scientist scientific debate. Uh, so we, we have found that, we haven't published it yet, but uh, it's very clear that the mice that eat resveratrol on a high fat diet live a lot longer. Right. And that cannot be activated by resveratrol don't. Uh, but here's the thing that's interesting. Those mutant mice have a phenotype. They are not normal. The so, mice with a sirtuin one inactivation. Yeah, the sirtuin one is is normal. It works fine. It's active, oh. but it just cannot be turned on by resveratrol. Oh, huh. but even in a, on a normal diet with no resveratrol around that we know of, it is aging faster, based on the the clock and on the on the various parameters. Not a lot, but it, it it's definitely different heart and other um, things you can measure. Mm -hmm. So what does that say? Either it says that xenohormesis or something like it, like what you've said is true, and that the plant world is really signaling to our bodies, or that there's a molecule that looks like resveratrol that we make naturally. Um, and we're entertaining both possibilities. I wonder, yeah, that's very compelling. I wonder if there's an endogenous molecule that looks like resveratrol. I will add um, that haven't there, I'll just gently insert that there, there have been a few trials with resveratrol in humans that didn't come out so good, right? On Oh, don't be gentle. No, I'm a <laughs> metabolic syndrome. You know, there's, there was a trial in metabolic syndrome. There was a trial in prostate cancer that, and it, I mean, resveratrol's kind of, and there was a trial in NAFLD where resveratrol wasn't really that helpful. Um, in fact, in the, there was a trial in prostate cancer in humans where resveratrol was found to worsen um, androgen precursors. And resveratrol is one of this family of molecules that looks a lot like estrogens. And so some of the concern that I have around resveratrol is that it, it, it is acting as an endocrine disruptor. And it, this, this is suggested by this prostate cancer trial um, in which it decreased androgen precursors. And I'll pull it up for you. Um, but this was concerning to me. So this trial is resveratrol reduces the levels of circulating androgen precursors, but has no effect on testosterone, DHT, PSA levels, uh, or prostate volume, a four-month randomized trial in middle-aged men. So 
Um, it didn't really help for um, the prostate cancer outcomes, but it did it did decrease um, androgen precursors. And I thought, well, that's not a that's probably not a good thing in humans. It would be interesting to measure your your testosterone, DHEA, DHT, on and off resveratrol in humans and see if that um, is continuing to hold true. And then some of the other trials, like I said, it actually worsened glycemic control in a few trials in patients with metabolic syndrome. Yeah. So one of these is the title is No Beneficial Effects of Resveratrol on the Metabolic Syndrome, a Randomized Controlled Trial. So I don't know. I guess this is kind of part of my hesitation with xenohormesis. I definitely think that the ability of uh, resveratrol to activate the sirtuin genes is fascinating. And could it also be having negative side effects elsewhere, like so many of these other plant molecules that I was talking about? Yeah. Well, so the clinical trial uh, world is a complete mess because about half the people didn't know what they were doing. Uh, resveratrol won't get into the body unless you dissolve it in something. Right. Um, and so now that I've been saying this and I think people are learning, um, there are a number of clinical trials that have been positive, lowering of blood sugar, reducing arterial stiffness in patients. Um, and so some of those first studies were done just by popping a dry pill of basically brick dust, and that's not going to work. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot of evidence now that high doses of resveratrol can ameliorate type 2 diabetes or at least blood sugar, fasting blood sugar levels. Mm. Um, but what we find in our lab, um, and I think it, it's generally true for the studies I've seen in humans, um, is that if you give it to a healthy person, you're not going to see much happen. Um, it's, it's more, I take it as a preventative more than anything else. Uh, it's when you get into the, the really severe obese and high blood sugar that um, in, in mice and I think in humans that it worked better. Maybe better, so yeah. If you've got metabolic syndrome, I don't know how bad that was um, at, at that point. Uh, nevertheless, there's, you know, I wrote a review in 2016 and there were, I think, two dozen human studies and now there's at least that many more. Um, some work, some don't. And, uh, you know, I, I've given you my best explanation for what's going on. No, it's interesting. Maybe we need more studies with the, like you said, the lipophilic media to get it into the body and see what's happening. And I think the idea of an endogenous resveratrol-like molecule is quite fascinating as well. Um, but I think that it's, it's incredible that we can do this. And with the plant molecules, I just am always kind of like, well, we should be a little careful because as we know, these are actually plant defense molecules. You hinted at this, but resveratrol is produced in peanuts and grapes in response to attack by a botrytis fungus. So it's a plant defense molecule. And there's sort of interesting um, philosophical implications of, yeah. you know, plant molecules. It's like, well, you know, they, they certainly do things. It's kind of like this molecular pharmaceutical factory in plants. They're making all of these molecules. And we, I just caution um, I, I, I suggest caution when we're looking at them because I fear about the negative side effects that people ignore because people certainly ignore the negative side effects of sulforaphane and curcumin widely. Uh, yeah, I, I'm on board with that. Um, yeah, I just, I was able to call up a study here on, um, one of the latest clinical trials. Um, and the title in 2019 is the effects of resveratrol and metabolic status in patients with type two diabetes and heart disease. And these were patients that were treated for four weeks with 500 mg 
uh, per day of resveratrol or placebo, so placebo controlled. Um, and just to summarize, the last second last sentence of the paper is abstract is um, uh, it had uh, beneficial effects on glycemic control, HDL cholesterol levels, total to HDL cholesterol ratio, uh, and uh, melanaldehyde levels, which uh, is relevant to anti antioxidant uh, levels. So, you know, just to throw it back at you, not not to be argumentative, but but I am. Um, there, there's there's evidence on both sides. Interesting, yeah, yeah, evidence on both sides. I wonder because that one showed that one yeah, showed better. Yeah, yeah. melanodialdehyde is. Nothing, a, I have nothing to gain except my my own uh, uh, ego in this. Um, I'm not selling resveratrol or anything like that. I'm just trying to get you on a ketogenic diet, man. <laughs> well, yeah, you'll have to you'll have to tell me how to how to do it. Uh, I will I'm, for sure. Yeah. Let's circle back to mTOR because I think people are going to have a lot of questions about this. And uh, going back to our first meeting, you'd had some concerns about this too. So there's a fascinating study. You might want to pull this one up. It's called The Actions of Exogenous Leucine on mTOR Signaling and Amino Acid Transporters in Human Myotubes. And this is pretty cool because what they did was they compared the signaling of leucine, which is probably the most triggering amino acid uh, for mTOR that I'm aware of, and insulin on mTOR. And what they found was that the, the biggest signal for mTOR, which again is this sort of anabolic regulatory protein in the human body, the biggest signal for mTOR was insulin. More than leucine, it was insulin. And this kind of makes sense because you know, at the cellular surface, there's IGF-1 receptors, which is insulin-like growth factor. There's insulin and IGF-1 can bind to insulin receptors and insulin can trigger insulin receptors. And downstream of the insulin receptor is the mTOR pathway. And so we know that insulin triggers mTOR. And so this is what I've often thought of as quite fascinating. People always ask me about mTOR with regard to a carnivore diet, but more broadly in response to amino acid intake, the, 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 the hypothesis that we could generate from this study is that if we're eating leucine, so if we're eating you know, protein in the absence of a bunch of insulin, like we would get in a ketogenic state, you know, we're gonna get a small bump in insulin postprandially uh, if we're just eating a carnivore diet or in a ketogenic state, but we're not gonna get nearly as much insulin released postprandially. We're gonna get mostly a signal that's gonna be leucine and we're going to get mTOR triggered, but it's going to be much less, and it's going to be for a short amount of time. They were both able to show the relative contributions of mTOR signaling and the temporal signaling of mTOR, and, and insulin was the major trigger here rather than leucine. I definitely think that eating a big steak, I am triggering leucine, and I think that if people eat steak, if, they, if people choose to uh, limit their protein, they have to eat carbohydrates. Um, or they could just eat fat, but if they're eating any carbohydrates, they're going to get, <clears throat> they're going to get insulin signaling. And then the insulin is going to also trigger mTOR potentially more and for longer. So the relative contributions or the relative amount of mTOR signaling, I would suggest might even be less on a carnivore diet that's ketogenic than a carbohydrate based diet that doesn't have as much protein. And though it's not a direct measure what I've seen anecdotally in myself and many other carnivores that we've measured IGF-1 levels in, they're quite low. They're very low. I've seen IGF-1 fasting levels 
you know, after like a 12 hour fast of like 120 or 140 down to like 70 or 90, you know, we're not seeing huge IGF-1 levels that are off the chart. We don't, I, there's no test that I'm aware of that's a great proxy for mTOR activation in the blood. I don't, I don't have any way to measure it. So, oh, and we definitely see very low fasting insulin in people on ketogenic diets. But what do you make of all this? Does that kind of help clarify my perspective? Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's complicated uh, because we're talking about sirtuins and mTOR and how they, they work together. Uh, what you've reminded me of is, is a company called NUSIRT, N-U-S-I-R-T, and I saw them give a talk, public talk, uh, in Washington a few weeks ago. And uh, they've got a, a similar approach. I think it's based probably on the, the research that you're reading, that they give a double dose of resveratrol and leucine or metformin and leucine mm -hmm. to be able to simultaneously boost CERT1 activity, which they claim leucine does. Um, they claim leucine is a direct activator of CERT1 like resveratrol. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, we haven't repeated that, but uh, that's what they say. And then, uh, and then they have a product that they've, they've done a clinical trial and they found that this leucine-resveratrol combination had synergy, which increased insulin sensitivity and controlled gl glucose in pre-diabetic patients, uh, including weight loss. Hmm. So that was pretty interesting data that I didn't realize uh, was out there. And you, earlier, you brought up the cycling concept. I think that so many in the community worry about activating mTOR at all. They never want to activate mTOR. And I think this is a mistake. I think we need to activate mTOR to get muscles and we need to activate mTOR sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so my thinking has been, you know, if I eat steak twice a day within a small window, I'm going to trigger mTOR. I'm going to work out. I'm going to keep my muscles, which I know that I need for longevity in terms of insulin sensitivity and avoidance of sarcopenia. And then I'm going to have periods in the day where I'm just fasting completely. And, but, but I don't, because of this type of research, I don't worry about overactivation of mTOR on a ketogenic carnivore diet. And that was just what I wanted to share with you. I didn't have the paper then when we were at uh, Sean's podcast, but I was like, oh yeah, I got to show you this. Right. But I think it's, it's quite interesting to look at relative contributions of mTOR. Um, and I think that this segues into maybe something that will bring us to closing I, I heard you on one of the Google talks and you said you were eating a plant-based diet because you were worried about animal protein. And so everybody I've talked to, I was like, I'm having David Sinclair on the show. I'm so excited. They're like, ask him why he doesn't like animal protein. I was like, you know that I will. So, so what do you make of all this? I mean, now that I've had my chance to kind of, you know, show you this stuff, I feel like, um, I feel like I'm one of your graduate students in your office. Like, look at these papers I found. Yeah, no, that's fine. That happens all the time. Um, well, before we jump into that, I, I wanted you to know and your listeners to know that uh, resveratrol actually inhibits mTOR. So you know, huh. that's an interesting thing. Maybe resveratrol is activating CERT1 as we want, activating, a, activating NPK as we want, and inhibiting mTOR. It actually it blocks the interaction between deptor uh, and mTOR, which is, is what you want if you want to mimic um, low amino acids. So I may I may not need to avoid meat to be able to keep my mTOR levels low. Now, here's here's the the the, the subtlety. Okay, I'm I'm not a hardcore person when it comes to diet, um, nor supplements. By the way, it may come as a surprise uh, because it sounds like all I think about is this stuff, and it's not. I try my best, but I'm also only human. 
But the other thing that I do with my diet um, is that I like to mix it up. And so while I'm mostly plant-based, in large part, um, well, in part at least because my family is vegetarian and I have a, a very strict vegetarian daughter, um, I will eat meat. Uh, but I, I choose to eat meat. Um, you know, fish is totally fine with me. I will eat fish if given to me. Uh, I enjoy it. Would I eat a giant steak? Um, I, I used to do that a lot. I'm Australian, right? I'm a barbecue kind of guy. I've tried not to for two reasons. One is um, I'm tired of my daughters um, thinking less of me because of it. <laughs> Your daughter needs to listen to my podcast more. I have I have the cure for you, my friend. Well, here's the other thing. Uh, I also try to uh, be good to the planet. Oh, yes. Let's talk about that, too, because I need to disabuse you of this notion. Okay. Okay, and then finally, it is science-based. And my, my read of the literature is that uh, in most times when I'm not working out, um, so here's what I'll do. Let me summarize, because I think everyone wants to know. I will work out tomorrow for three hours. I'll basically really put my body through a fair amount of pain, including hot and cold and endurance and weightlifting, okay? Yeah, yeah, radical life. I will not be take. I will not be avoiding meat, and I will not be avoiding. I will not be taking metformin, which uh, can reduce the size of muscles that, right. that result. Though, if you look at that data, it's not as bad as it sounds. I think Peter had an overreaction to that because the muscles were just as strong in both cases, whether you took metformin or not. And you know, if you want to look big and bulky, you know, then maybe lay off the metformin uh, once in a while. But I, I, I do agree, you do need growth. You know, mTOR is good for growth. That's what it's designed for. But I think having it on all the time, constantly, is, is not the way to longevity. So mix it up. But we're not going to have it all the time. I'm not going to have it in, in my situation, right? If I'm eating a ketogenic carnivore diet and I'm signaling it with leucine, it's more precise. It's on less and it's on for a shorter amount of time. And there's not as much carryover. So if I'm doing a ketogenic carnivore diet, maybe like our ancestors would have done, just eating mostly animals and getting lots of protein, I'm turning mTOR on for six hours a day, and then I have a, a fasting window where it's off all day, right? And so this is what I'm, that I'm saying, and that is that if somebody's eating a, ca a carbohydrate-rich diet, they're going to have mTOR on more than yeah. somebody doing what I'm doing. I agree. So yeah. I don't have a carbohydrate-rich diet either. Um, it, I have... I'm, I'm basically trickling in the, the aminos with uh, with some some plant based food and some some cheese, okay. which I know I know it has protein in it. <laughs> there was a really interesting study that just came out since we we met each other, uh, and it, again it was in mice. But what they showed in a study down in Sydney is that if you give mice a lot of branched chain amino acids, they are hungrier and they get fatter uh -huh. and they die younger. Which you might say, wow, that's you know, it's bad to eat a lot of branched-chain amino acids, which you'll get from abundance of meat. But what they found was if those mice then were calorically restricted or at least had their food intake restricted, which we can do as conscious beings, which you do, uh, then it was fine. It didn't reduce their lifespan. So that sounds like that study is being recapitulated in your life. Maybe. The thing I wonder about in that study is did they use any glycine? Because in so many of the branched chain amino acid feeding experiments, 
they're overfeeding methionine and then they're changing the methionine glycine ratio. And this was done, you know, in the 70s and the 60s. They gave mice a whole bunch of methionine, it shortened their life. And then they restricted methionine, it lengthened their life. But then there's a series of studies where they gave glycine back to these mice and the glycine extended life, right? Mm -hmm. So this methionine glycine ratio is so important. So I'd have to look at that study and say, by doing, by giving mice a bunch of branched chain amino acids, were they, did they change the methionine glycine ratio in a negative way? And that's one of the things that I talk about with regard to a carnivore diet or any diet um, is the, the importance of a, a proper methionine glycine ratio. And if we're eating animals nose to tail and eating the connective tissue, we're going to get glycine from that. But that's a whole separate podcast. Got it. Well, if you want to look it up and if listeners want to look up that study, it's by Stephen Simpson. Simpson? In Sydney, Australia. Right. University of Sydney. Yep. Do you know the title? Uh, nope, I don't. But it was last week and it came out in Nature Metabolism. Okay, I'll find it. Awesome. And if you, if you can't find it, um, I'll give you Steve's cell phone. You can call him. All right, I'll call him off right now. We'll get him on the phone. All right, let's talk about the environment a little bit because um, my read of the literature is very different than this. If you look at the EPA data from 2014 and 2017 in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, cattle produce 1.8% of the greenhouse gas emissions in the United States per year, 1.8%, which is less than significantly less than the greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. And the biggest three polluters, transportation, production of fossil fuels, burning of fossil fuels, and industry and technology. So that's more than three, but I kind of broke those up into different things. But if you look at the relative contributions, you know, like outside of agriculture, so plant agriculture is about 5% of greenhouse gas emissions per year in the US. Animal agriculture is about 4% of that cows are 1.8. So about 90% of greenhouse gas emissions are non-agriculture, right? We all have to eat. There has to be some ecosystem around food, but only 10% of greenhouse gases come from food. 90% of greenhouse gases come from things that we're doing that are lifestyle driven, right? Cars, burning fossil fuel, technology, like just to, to I, I just wanted to make sure you were aware of this data because when people make statements like that they're eating plant-based for the environment, I kind of bristle and think that's a mistake from all the data that I've seen. And then the, the other point that I would add is if you're aware of something called regenerative agriculture, which is ecosystems agriculture, where cows are grazing on land in an ancestrally consistent manner, they can actually sequester more carbon into the soil than they produce. So regenerative agriculture can sequester carbon into the environment, it's carbon negative. So raising more ruminants on this planet that are raised that way from farms like white oak pastures decreases carbon in the environment. So I have a shirt that I always wear and I didn't wear it today. Um, it's, it says, eat meat, save the planet. Like, you know, if you were to eat meat from white oak pastures, which is down in Georgia, and you should come, December 14th and 15th, we're gonna be in, in Georgia. I know you're a busy guy, but, like you should check out white oak pastures. They're carbon negative. They had a life cycle analysis by USC. They sequester more carbon into the soil than they produce. So if we support farms like that, we can decrease overall all greenhouse gases. So this notion that by not eating meat, we are somehow saving the planet, I, I would argue against that. What, what is your feeling about that? Uh, uh, well, I'm not totally against meat, but just to take the opposite view, um, 
there are other considerations such as water usage and land usage and uh-huh. degradation of the land and the fact that these are actually conscious beings that that we breed uh, and I, I come from a family where you know my wife is an animal lover and all that so it's you know, I've eaten meat most of my life, so I'm not against it. Um, it's just all the combination of other things that have been around, including the research that I've been doing, led me to uh, this stance that I have currently. Uh, but I'm I'm a scientist. I'm happy to be convinced otherwise. If you look at the water usage, the way that water usage for cattle is, is calculated, they incorporate 90% of the water usage or 95% of the water usage of cows is rainwater. That's what they're saying. The cows are producing. It's rainwater. It's already falling on the land. I'll send it to you on Instagram. I've reposted this graphic from Diana Rogers and Sacred Cow. So water usage claims for cattle are widely inaccurate, widely misinterpreted because of the rainwater that's falling on the soil. It's very clear that almonds use way more water than cows do. And then what about what you should do is compare. uh, And this would be this would be pretty scandalous. But if beyond meat. Was oh, they, they are worse. They're worse. Beyond Meat is also worse than regular meat in terms of carbon emissions. This has been done. They've done a life cycle analysis on Beyond Meat. It's worse than regular meat. It's worse than white oak pastures because white oak pastures is carbon negative. So by buying these, these I mean, when people are plant-based and they say, I'm not eating meat to save the environment, and they are buying Impossible Burgers, they are contributing more to greenhouse gas emissions than they would if they supported regenerative agriculture with real cows. Okay. Now, the land use is a different story. That's a whole separate conversation that we can have. I did a podcast with Peter Ballerstead. Most of the most of the land that cattle are on is not even farmable land. And again, I'm really an advocate for a way of raising cattle that doesn't allow them to destroy the land. They just they get rotationally grazed. And that's that's so those are my takes on that. And I would love maybe at some point you and I can sit down and um, and have a stake and talk about the research that you've done. Well, I'm just curious. We don't. I don't want to take up more of your time. We've talked about so much today, but I would love to hear like the stuff that you've looked at that has suggested that 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 has led you to avoid meat. Because yeah. I'm gonna believe me, my friend. You are gonna get a signed copy of my book when it comes. I would, out. I would love to read it. I hope. I hope I can hand deliver it to you. But Boston is kind of far. But if you look at the literature, like if you just look at the literature, there are interventional studies with red meat that do not show any harm. Anything that suggests that meat is bad is epidemiology. And you, you know, as well as I do, that can be incredibly misleading with things like healthy user bias. But I'm, I'm sure that you've done your due diligence and I would just love to have that conversation at some point. In the yeah, future. I'm, I'm not an anti-meat Nazi about it. Um, I'm actually more focused on on the the fasting period than actually what I'm eating for the reasons I mentioned earlier. Yeah, I think that's that's probably going to make a bigger difference to my longevity. Um, but yeah, I think we're in an interesting age, right? Where there are so many different ways to eat, and really no clear answer just yet. And it may turn out that there isn't one perfect answer here. There may uh, not as long be. As, as long as you don't just eat a standard American diet. We know that's bad. And, and I've said on other podcasts that anytime someone makes an intentional choice with regard to diet, I give them like an air high five. I'm like, you, you know, anytime someone is doing something intentionally in their diet, even if they choose to be vegetarian or vegan, like I'm like, look, you made an intentional choice. That is awesome. And I'm just trying to provide more information for people to make their own personal intentional choice. I agree with you. I think the worst thing is when people are complacent because diet influences health 
so fundamentally, right? Yeah, well, what's not appreciated generally is that 20% of our longevity is genetic, which we can't do much about yet. Uh, but the other 80% is how we live our lives. And yeah. food, is, food and exercise are the two big ones. It's huge. That's how we relive a radical life. And then I'll just, I wanted to highlight one thing and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. I love that that you said that you gave the mice rapamycin or not rapamycin, that's a whole separate podcast, resveratrol every other day and that resveratrol is inhibiting mTOR. And again, I, I think this is so important that we're not always inhibiting mTOR. We want to kind of cycle on, cycle off, cycle on, cycle off. And um, there's lots of ways to do that, like we talked about. So where can people find more of your stuff? And uh, you've got this book, Lifespan. It's amazing. It's really easy to read and enjoyable. I encourage everyone to check it out. I think you'll all really like it. Where can people find more of your stuff? Uh, well, the, the first place would be to go to lifespanbook.com. It's a website all about the book, some Q&A. And uh, you can sign up for a newsletter that I put out every few weeks. And I'm also on social media. I'm on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram too. And you can see what's going on in my brain on a daily basis if you're interested. Um, and sometimes, you know, that there's questions that people ask me routinely every day, which I will answer in the newsletter. So please, you know, sign up for that if you're curious about what, what I've talked about. And the book, I, I've been, I want to thank anybody who's read it and bought it. It's, uh, you know, it, it was a passion uh, for me to be able to tell the world about what we were working on. And actually, the, there's stuff in that book, most of it. It's, it's so cutting edge that it's only just being learned about by scientists as well. And that whole information theory of aging that we talked about at first, that's brand new. Uh, and there are a lot of scientists who are upset with me coming up with something that radical. But, you know, the world doesn't change unless you put forward things that will challenge the status quo. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> All right. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. All right. So this is the last question I always ask my podcast guests and I'm, I am a child of the eighties. So I use the word radical in this context, like eighties radical, right? So we're talking like neon white snake poison, like radical, like radical, amazing, cool, wicked. What is the most radical thing that you have done in the last month? Man. Damn. Um, I, I'd like to include uh, what I did at the, just maybe a little over a month, which was uh, go hiking in the rainforests of Uganda to go see gorillas. Cool. That's, that's pretty radical. That's radical. Uh, in, in the same forest where Ebola broke out a week later. <laughs> Would resveratrol save you from that? Who knows? Ketosis yeah. might. <laughs> but what, what I, Paula, what, what I want to say though is the person who led the charge up the mountain was my 80 year old father. And he's just as healthy as he was when he was 20. And I'm not kidding. The guy's stronger than me at the gym. We've tested it. And at 80, he started a new career. He's got now ordered his dream car on, on a wait list. What's and his dream car? Uh, I didn't want to say this, but um, I will. Uh, it's, a, it's a Tesla. That's amazing. What's wrong with that? Um, I don't know. My wife said, it's a fairly expensive car, but it's a Tesla three. So it's not that bad. But uh, in any case, he's been talking about it for years thinking, Oh, I'm too old. I'm going to die. And he's like, I'm not dying. This is great. I'm going to get what everything I want. And anyway, so he, uh, he's an inspiration uh, to, I think not just my family, but everybody who reads the book 
Um, for people who want to go to the back of the book, that's where we list what we do as a family, what we take and why. And part two, the middle of the book is about the why cold might help, hot diets, that kind of stuff, what you can do in your daily lives and really the science behind it. And what I did was I've got a lot of references in the back. So if you want to dig deep, and I, I think all the listeners who listen to us today and stayed awake are dig, deep diggers. Um, there's a lot of references that you can go and check me out, check out my facts. Um, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's cool, man. Well, listen, I hope that you and I get to hang out again soon because I really enjoyed this. I know that your time is precious and I so appreciate you doing this. I would say that I hope we can have a steak, but you know, maybe we could have a steak or, you know, we'll, we'll at least we'll, we should eat and work out together at some point soon. So I look forward to that. Yeah, I'd love that. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for coming on, man. You're welcome.